We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know? Welcome into the Gator Nation Football Podcast. It's Tennessee week. Let's go. I'm here alongside Alan Williams, I'm James DiVirgilio, and little Peyton is right here in the studio with us. This, Alan, of course, is one of my favorite weeks of the year. Indeed. You How love you feeling? It. How you feeling? Uh, I love it, too. Uh, Tennessee is such a fun rivalry. Also, this was traditionally like the first real game. Uh, you know, My whole childhood, teenage years, college years, Florida would take mostly play two cupcakes and then the first game was Tennessee. So you didn't really know what you had until you went into that game. It was such a mystery. You're waiting for it to get any real information about the team. Obviously Florida's played a couple more real opponents of late, but this still marks the, the season has begun kind of for me. It's the first game of sec play often really fun week. Yeah. And this is definitely how Tennessee feels for them Two relative cupcakes in Virginia and Austin P. And we'll talk about that later. But they are entering into this week wondering what they have with this year's edition of their football team, perhaps even a bit concerned. All right. As always, if you like this content, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel for film reviews, and become a patron on Patreon, where you too can drop us a dono and become a donoer. Shout out, as always, to B-Red for helping us produce this show each week, and for Carly, the commissioner, for her tireless work on editing those YouTube film videos. I would not be able to do it. Without Got to hang out with B Red in person. We did. B Red weekend. Fun times. Yeah, great times. B Red, he's a good time. B Red, North Carolina, Florida guy, both schools he attended. Fast guy as well. I asked B Red what top speed he could hit. Track guy in college, North Carolina. And he confidently said 23 miles an hour, which is what you in. are when you're a legit D1 sprinter. So anyway, B Red. B Red can fly. Uh, there you go. Played for Florida as well as a safety. All right, join the GNFP Sammy and GNFP Java Discord threads. We put those links in all of our social media after every show. If you want to hop on one of those to discuss the game or anything leading up to the game, you can pick up merch, which is also in our show descriptions, a host of all kinds of stuff for you to take a look at and purchase and wear on game day or anywhere else you have the desire to wear GNFP stuff. And a quick note here on Little Peyton in the studio. He is 15-2, and two, mm-hmm. and he wants people to know he's his face is always kind of angry, but it's extra angry. <laughs> 
is hot today because he lost last year and he doesn't want that. So that's important. But you can have a hang out with Alan and I this Friday night. And maybe a little Peyton too. Yeah, you're gonna bring a little. We'll bring little Peyton along. I think so. Little Peyton will make an appearance this. Okay, this is big news because this is like out of the blue. Big news, and you have like no time. So if it's Thursday and you're hearing this, then guess what? There's a pod meetup in Gainesville, Florida, Friday night at 7 p.m. at First Magnitude. Friday from 7 to 9 p.m. at First Magnitude Brewery in Gainesville. We're gonna have the backyard just like we did last time. Come pull up, hang out with Alan and I and Little Peyton, talk football, meet some fellow Gator fans. Uh, have, a, have a great time. Last time we had, I don't know, almost a couple hundred people show up and hang out. And so I have no idea what turn will be this time. There's no ticket required. You literally just pull up, walk in, say hello, hang out, grab a beer or not. Uh, but but we'll talk football. It should be an absolute great time. And then a couple weekly shout outs, which I think are kind of fun. This just keeps happening organically. But Pam from the UF Physics Department oh, yeah. is a fan of this show. And uh, Pam, shout out to you. We heard how much you follow the show and support the show. And we love that we have representation in the physics department. That's fantastic. There you go. Yep. Let's go, Pam. And then Mr. Clem. I'm going to refer to him as Mr. Clem. I didn't get his first name, but he was at the game. He is actually Hayden's dad, who is a walk-on on on U.S. football team. Walked up to me in the stadium and said, hey, you know, great to see you. Love your stuff. You know, really appreciate it. And uh, we appreciate you for listening. Yeah, for sure. Mr. Clem, thank you very much. Tell us about some... New donos here. New donos. Busy week. Appreciate it. Uh, Alex Barber, Noah, WW777 coming in with an annual. And Jake Martinson coming in with an annual. Jake, of course, I see on a weekly basis. So Jake, love that you're coming in to support the show. It always means, I think, maybe more when people that you know in real life frequently and you see and engage with support the pod because there's this level of like, is that is that weird? Is that cool? <laughs> And I told Jake in person, man, I, I appreciate it. That's awesome. We feel we feel the love there. So small donos there. Thank all three of you. Large donos, brand new donor Reggie Witherspoon coming in. Thank you. And then Alan, I'm going to let you take a stab on this last name. I think it's Limberopolis, but I mean, Chris Limberopolis, I don't know what else it would it's be. It's perfect, right? All right, great. Chris Limberopolis coming with a large dono as well. Brand new. Welcome to the fam. And a level up uh, from Jim. I love this. I'm a D Virgilio. He's a D Cesaro. Cesaro. Yeah. yeah. D Cesaro. Love that right there. From one of the family to the other. So of the Cesaro family, of the Virgil family, welcome in. So Caesar's our, family there. Yeah. Welcome to our, yeah, that's big time, right? Welcome to our GNFP family. And then a hundo bomb coming in hot from definitely not Dan Warner. So whoever this is, it's definitely not it's Dan definitely Warner. definitely not Dan Warner, but it is a hundo bomb. Bow, bow, bow. Love there it. You go. Push bow, the bow, bow. Excellent stuff. And still sitting on the throne, Cooper and Kylie Craig ruling over the GNFP, hoping to get a W over Tennessee. Thank you for all of your support. We do this each and every week at the opener to recognize all of you for supporting our efforts. We appreciate it greatly. All right, can I throw just a scorching hot take at you? Yes, please. Dan Warner gets a little too much hate. Hmm. He was doing his job. He was undersized and undermanned. Had to play the four. Wasn't the right fit for him. Couldn't do it, but you know what? He's the best guy we had to run out there. And that's a coaching choice. You know, he's doing what they're asking him to do. He couldn't do it. That's not his fault. No, I mean, as Steve Spurrier told Danny Warfel after he threw an interception against Auburn early on in his career, he said, hey, Danny, you know, it's not your fault for throwing an interception. It's my fault for putting you in there. There you go. And I think that does actually sum up a lot of Gator Nation's frustration towards Dan Warner. He was not volunteering to put himself in there. He was doing his best, and he was in there. He never made a three either, so that's a little bit on him. But... On Billy for running him out there over Just and over kept again. running him out there. There you go. Nice. I'm glad we were Dan there. Warner, Thank you know you. what? Needs a little redemption in Gator Nation, but definitely not, not Dan Warner. He That's did fine. not drop a hundo bomb. 
So Dan Warner, if you're out there, drop your own hundo bomb and you can be definitely Dan Warner. And we'll get this going. Okay, back to the Dunham Legends. Let's start with the former Kings and Queens here. James Ridge, Barry Jenkins, Guy Templeson, Jason Walker, the, the big homie, Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stosh Mead, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, Craig Scarato, Alan Horn, Sidney Singleton, Kristen Moody, and a few more. Right, A few new additions here. David Sugar, Percy Harvin, baby. And the last one I'm going to let you read. So this was pretty unbelievable. We said last week that 500 was going to be moved up to 1,000, which is the new support level, largely because I know a lot of you already probably laugh at how long it takes us to get through all the supporting part of the episode and Alan reading these names. So we have to keep moving it up, not because we're trying to make it more elite, so to speak, but because thankfully this list would be (laughs) unbelievably long, which again, we really appreciate that. And this last name, much to my surprise, that made it right in under the cutoff, which I think he's going to be surprised too, is actually the one and only my dad, Doug DiVirgilio. So now he gets the illustrious reward of having his name read every single week, which I can assure you he doesn't care about. But regardless, (laughs) uh, pretty pretty great. I love it. That he's going to be on there. And so now uh, the next person that slides in will be a dono legend at $1,000 of total lifetime support, which honestly is amazing. We appreciate that. And a lot of people on this list, Alan, have given well more than 1000 And we are super appreciative. The show is not about money, of course, not at all. But we reward those who who donate to us. And we reward those of you who listen by churning out free content as much there as you can each and every week. Everything is free. That's what we do. That's what we're here for. Uh, so with that behind us, let's start digging in to the good stuff yeah. here, Alan. Okay, Florida wins 49 to 7. They beat the McNeese State Cowpokes, Cowboys, Pokes, something like that. Yeah, I, I need to go back and reread the Big Homies Culture Corner to get that name right. It but didn't, it didn't stick, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, they are an FCS team. They are not a good FCS team. So we didn't actually do any keys to victory. But we did say a few things, right? I, I want to see a better run game. Check. I want to see the freshmen more on offense. Maybe defense generate turnovers that did not quite happen. I predicted 56 13. You predicted 56 0, which is pretty dang close. You wanted to see the playmakers make plays and a shutout. And we almost got that shutout. If not for a fumble, I think the shutout definitely happens if you punt that ball away and, you know, a touchdown short there. That, that's pretty right on. Nice, nice prognosticating there. But yeah, yeah, thanks. I think mainly it was that, you know, this is why we love film study. Right. I know each and every week I get we get great comments, Alan, on the YouTube channel and on Twitter and everywhere else. You get all these different comments, but a lot of them are 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 fantastic, very supportive. And and some of them, as it will be in the public sphere, are detractors saying something or the other. Uh, but oftentimes the big benefit of film is there's always speculation on what you think may translate or happen. But as we say in the podcast, when you see positioning and tactics and and play calling on film, it, it will carry over. It is not a fluke. And we saw that, as we said, with Utah. And now we saw that versus an overmatched opponent. And that's why I felt like a shutout was entirely reasonable in this game. And in fact, it really should have happened. And we're going to break that down more. Uh, But hats off to the defense from first string all the way down to walk on. I thought in general, like you can see the power of good, consistent coaching, teaching and development on the entire roster already. 
And that is a hallmark of good coordination and good coaching. And so hopefully you guys enjoyed that in the swamp as well. Uh, but either way, you know, a nice win. We're going to talk about if it means anything, but a nice win. Yeah. Given given Florida's current run that we're on, and we hadn't won in five games in a row. Is it four games in a row? Four, four in a row, right? Five. Yeah. Four, four losses in four a row, losses five in losses in a row. I think it's four in a row. So, in a row. so all in all, right. we're, we're feeling good about that. For sure. And we'll talk and about how good you should feel about it. Okay, let's let's first talk about the crowd, though. I, I got to say, Gator Nation, I was proud of you for sh- one showing up at this game, showing up on time, students there on time, filled it up. I mean, it was a, a near capacity crowd for McNeese State after an L, after an L, and people stayed. I, they didn't start emptying out till after the third quarter, when yeah, you know, that's a that's a maybe appropriate time, unless you're like me who will stay the whole game every time. Uh, to like kind of go do whatever else. Maybe you got kids, you got to get them in bed. I get it. Or you wanted to watch Texas Bama. Or you wanted to watch Texas Bama. But yes, great job by the crowd. Made it feel a fun environment, even for a way overmatched opponent. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Good crowd on hand. And and like you said, the students have really bought in seemingly to the the program here in the past couple of years, selling stuff out, uh, which, is, which is excellent. And the weather was really uh, was surprisingly beautiful. excellent for this early in September in Gainesville. So that yes. worked out well too. We'll talk about the Tennessee heat in a second here. Okay. The lights were new led lights that would flash upon celebration moments, you know, touchdowns, whatever. Did you like the lights to do anything for you? I mean, I've never, I've never been wowed by the led lights. It's, <laughs> I'm not at a concert. I'm at a no. football game, but also I am uh at times I'm like a purist and a simplest, like, yeah, that's right. I use the word simplest in that regard. Uh, meaning that, I'm there to watch the football and I want everything to enhance the football, which oftentimes is like atmosphere for me and lights can add atmosphere, but they can also just become sort of like a circus show and a gimmick. I liked the lights from the fact that I did not notice that they were led lights in a negative way shining on the field. Right. Cause sometimes those lights can give a blue hue or they can be a little off putting or uncomfortable. They were not, they were excellent. So I thought that was a home run for me. That's what I cared about the most. I know a lot of people seem to be frustrated. They didn't see a lot of orange or blue or other things other stadiums do, or they seemed less cool than other LED stadium lights. I have no comment on that because I don't know. I guess we'll find out what they do in future games with the range these LED lights have. But I think an LED light's an LED light. You can change them to whatever color you want. And I'm pretty sure they're all the same capability-wise in a stadium. But we'll figure that out. Either way, it's there. Does Does it make a recruit want to come to your school any more than another one? Probably not, but I think it's the first signal of the swamp getting modernized, which that is probably the way to look at it. This is the beginning of the floodgate of a, of a new swamp, which we all hope will be improved and not, you know, a new swamp that maybe we wish for the old swamp. I, mean, I thought they were fun. They're fine. I wasn't asking for LED lights. They weren't intrusive or crazy. It didn't detract anything, but I don't know if it added anything for me. Maybe if the kids like them, you know. Yeah. Sure. How about Tom Petty with the lights off? Did you feel like that was a bonus? That seems like where it might it was have cool. some application there. It was it was cool. I mean, I think just the Tom Petty moment in general is awesome. I, awesome. I was just reflecting that it's really difficult to create a new create new tradition. If you try, it can often feel like ham handed or forced and it just took and it felt like right from just from the jump. So anyway, yeah, I wouldn't want anything to take away from that either, because I think that's perfect as it is. Okay, so I was trying to describe this game to people, and I was like, you know, this game 
won't tell us if we're good, but it might tell us if we're bad, right? So you just because you you know run over an overmatched opponent doesn't mean too much, but if you can't do what you want to do against this team, that does not bode well for the future. So in my mind, the Gators passed the test. They did what they wanted to do offensively and defensively. They were never really threatened. Um, you know, they they weren't as a, effective at certain parts of the game. I'm sure they wanted to be, but they never looked like they were in trouble at all, or they couldn't move the ball or stop them. And so I think they passed this test, and it's pass fail a little bit in my mind. And you know, I I think it it's encouraging because you don't want to get getting an F on this test means really bad things. And you're, you're not really looking forward to much more in the season. If you don't show up against McNeese state, that's exactly right. And that's what kind of game, you know, this is, it's a test game, not in a way that tells you what your high end is, but as you mentioned, in a way that probably illuminates some weaknesses that you have that are probably here to stay Mm -hmm. and potentially show some strengths that you have. If, you get the right looks. And we'll talk about what the film showed um, after we kind of walk through some of the stats and, and what else happened here. But that's there is value in these games, as we talked about. But I think oftentimes fans way overvalue what their team looks like versus an overmatched opponent. And then they're maybe surprised when somebody who can challenge them forces them to look very different. I don't think Florida fans are that way uh, for the most part. But obviously, we will give you what we think are some real takeaways from this game. Okay. Florida offense, 560 yards of offense, 327 yards rushing, 233 passing. That's 6.4 yards per rush. There was a fumble late in the game, as we mentioned, five of six on third down. No sacks allowed. Mertz, very workmanlike, 14 of 17, 193 passing, one TD. ETN, 11 for 84 and a TD. Montreal Johnson, 15 for 119, two TDs. Trayon Webb uh, also had some carries and looked good running the ball. Ricky, six receptions, 132 yards, and a TD. So good stats from all of the headliner guys. Did you like what you saw from the first teamers? The players themselves gave max effort and and did all they can do in that regard. So, yeah, I thought the game was largely clean from an offensive perspective. Florida did what they wanted to do. Uh, and, And the first team, of course, was successful scoring each and every time they had the football which is not always the case, even mm-hmm. versus a bad, like you said, a bad a bad FCS school, which McNeese is. Um, so all in all, yeah, they, they played well. I think they should be proud of their performance. I think they played clean. They played solid execution football. I agree. I, you know, was a little surprised at some of those outputs. Like if you told me those were our stats after the game, I'd have been like, oh, interesting. Um, because it's not maybe what I thought we would do. I'll get into that in a second. Uh, the run game was obviously much more effective, and we were committed to doing it well. There was times that you know the left side would open up, and especially if you're having a vantage point from like the back side of the play, I think you or I might have been able to run for two yards. Maybe you could have gotten five. There was literally nobody there. There was nobody to block before they were seven yards downfield, and it wasn't anything tricky. Uh this seemed because they seem to be content not to put that many men in the box and just to say, okay, Florida, if you want to run it, you can, we're just going to play. I don't even know how to describe what their strategy was. Maybe you can put a word to it, but safe, I guess. Yeah. Safe is the right strategy. And in fact, obviously any team who runs like a three, three, five, 
or even a 3-2-6 or some other combinations are basically saying we're too small to play with four linebackers or three linebackers. So what we do is we bring in nickels or other safeties, even middle safeties, and we have them come down into the box late to help stop the run. Uh, and that keeps our back end safe because if we have a linebacker who's just not good enough, why have him out there when we could at least cover chunk plays and then rally down and, and group tackle? That's McNeese's strategy, of course. It's a horrific one versus Florida. If they were playing, I think, to really... I'm not saying they weren't playing to win the game, but if they were playing like some other FCS schools might play early on with a more tactical game plan to at least make Florida prove they can do something... They would have done what they should have done, which is stack the box and try to try to at least see how Florida responds. But I mean, this was almost like Billy dialed up and said, hey, if you guys could just run five man, sometimes five man boxes or six man boxes were the norm. uh, That'd be awesome. And then do that with three to four guys playing 20 yards off the ball on most snaps. That'd be awesome. I appreciate that. Please do that. And they did, which means the takeaway for me from this with Florida running the ball is not a single carry that florida had in this football game out of some goal line carries is even remotely realistic to anything florida will face all year long versus a real opponent nobody will play defense against florida like mcneese did nobody and so that's the i won't say it's a downside but if you're hanging your hat on the fact that florida's run game got right and now we can run i would not do that because we didn't face really any tactical no. fronts front sevens even anything a relative normal team would try against Florida in this game and it showed and Florida was able to do all they wanted to do in the running game against favorable boxes almost the entire game they really probably should have run it every play that's how the numbers of McNeese were telling Florida what to do was run don't pass and I think anyone who obviously is coached against Billy Napier knows it's the opposite of what you're typically scheming sure and you know that was kind of interesting because there was every run with just about every run was probably successful from like a metric but there weren't that many. There were no long runs because they had so many guys on the back end. So many guys back there, yeah. Yeah, and if you're a small team and you load it up and you get creased, you're going to give up like 70 yard runs all the time. And they didn't do that, um, basically by design. Um, and so the run game was efficient. It also made Florida have to march down the field because they weren't hitting big plays in the run game. Okay, so the run game looked fine. It. As expected, what they should have done, what you know their output probably should have been. Uh, the passing game, obviously, an efficient day again for Graham Mertz. Good completion percentage. You know, not a lot down the field, not a lot in the medium area, not a lot in the long distance area, not even a lot of attempts. Um, I want to ask you a very specific question here. Okay, obviously there was one long touchdown pass in the third quarter. Very nice play to Ricky. Good ball. Good route, good catch, easy touchdown. So we've highlighted ways that we think the the route tree and the route combos are not as efficient or effective as we want them to be. Anything specific about that design that was better or different than what's typically downfield or just we got them in a good formation and we were able to put some hurt on them? That's a great question. So first, no, there was nothing special about that play. And I'll describe it in a second that led to why that happened. I'll tell you why it did happen. And then two, Florida did try on about eight occasions in this football game to throw the ball deep for a big piece of chunk yardage. And they were unsuccessful on almost every single one of them. And that is a concern. As we've been highlighting from Billy's day one here, that is a concern. If you're a team that runs the football 
and you have second and one, second and two, which Florida had a lot, and you're going for big play action plays, and you are almost never hitting them. Or really even attempting them a lot. And again, the reason we're not attempting them, as we've said before on film, is the two receivers we send out are often doubled against McNeese. There were five and sometimes six guys covering them. And it blows my mind to this day, Alan, and I'm going to keep saying it. I know sometimes some of you out there are like, well, this is crazy. This guy's a hobbyist. How can he possibly know or even say these route combinations aren't good? Well, look, the film just tells you that people aren't open. And on top of that, the concepts, they don't make sense for the back-end defense you're often facing. And that's what I want to use to then launch into this play and why it worked. Um, McNeese was playing very predictable, generally speaking, either cover four or cover three, almost the entire game with some occasional cover two. And pre-snap, you could almost just know it. So again, in football, if I know, Alan, you're going to run a cover three, I can take a very simple play, like four verticals, where I send four receivers deep and I separate them across the field because I know that your rules dictate only three of your players are going to cover the back end of the field. And if I send four, you cannot cover all four. That's how easy that is, right? Everyone else, all eight other players are not going to run 25 or 30 yards down the field by their rule. So good offense, wise offense is designed plays that abuse teams' rules for coverage. Then the game becomes figuring out what coverage they're in. Now in the NFL, it becomes very hard to figure out what coverage anyone is in until after the snap. And even then it's tricky, depending on how good the NFL teams are disguising it. But the whole name of the game is figuring that out. And then really good plays generally will beat, typically speaking, two coverages really well. That's kind of the modern version of a play. It used to be that your play would work against every coverage. You'd have one route doing something that worked. And it would maybe be kind of you know pedestrian, but it would work. The modern school is far more of, I want to do something pre-snap so that I can get a pretty good idea of what you're doing post-snap. And then my play is going to be executed based upon the two concepts you are most likely in so I can get max expected value out of my play. And that is why I rail against Billy's passing offenses. That is never evident on film that we are doing that at any time. And it's why, even though we tried eight times with tons of time and, and, and receivers running out that are far superior to what McNeese has, and they're completely covered with no daylight anywhere to throw the football, and Mertz has to just run or take a check down. To me, that is a... a colossal failure because it's pretty simple to draw some run players some passing plays up Alan that allow guys to take a medium yardage scenario let's say lastly that you want to drop all four of your safeties two of your corner shifts back just 40 yards 50 yards every play you're going to do this right well the old adage take what the defense gives you is correct I could run the ball every time but if I pass the ball you know what I do I attack those 15 to 20 yard areas and I do that by sending a vertical receiver into one of your safeties areas knowing I'm going to clear him out And then I send another one on the same side into your corners area. So I'm going to clear him out. And then I sit my third receiver 20 yards down the field, well above a dropping linebacker who's got to stay home in the box for a run for all day easy chunk yards completions. This rarely ever happens with Florida's routes because they send only two guys out. Doesn't make sense. So with all that being said, what happened on the Ricky play? Well, Ricky simply ran a post route from the left side. And then Douglas on his side, uh, simply ran a clear out route, right? The difference that occurred here is they had cover three, looked like cover three pre-snap, and it actually became more of a cover six, meaning the middle safety, the three deep guy, actually just on hike walled off and covered Douglas with the other dropping corner, which left Ricky one-on-one with the guy who's playing cover three technique, so this guy messes up his coverage, allowing Ricky to just release to the middle, but there's no middle safety. 
So essentially a blown coverage is what resulted in that play. If they stayed running a true cover three, we sent two receivers into three deep safeties. There is no place to throw a post route with a middle safety sitting there. And pre-snap, it looked like it would have been cover three. So even running that route combination into that pre-snap, if you're a quarterback, you're like, this is not going to be open. But post-snap, they got a glorious, you know, kind of silly, stupid shift by McNeese. That's not realistic, and no other team is going to do anything like that to lead to a walk-in touchdown for Ricky. But you could have actually generated those kind of touchdowns all game long with better route design involving more than just two guys on those play-action passes. And Florida just does not seem like they are going to ever do that, Alan. We have 14, 15 games of data now, and it's the same stuff on film every single week. Typically a deep crosser by Douglas or Ricky, and the other guy runs some sort of double move, out and up or something else. And teams are just sitting on this play week in and week out. So that is the frustration. That's the takeaway from the passing game. Mertz, great job. Pretty much did all that he could do. Had two throws he wants back. He overthrew Ricky on a kind of short little wheel early in the game. And then he um, he missed a post route that he had to Douglas where the, the dropping cover three safety was basically on his like deep back end. Mertz threw a deep ball over his head. In reality, he should have that ball more in a line shorter of him so he just uses his basic leverage to catch it right uh but all in all he played excellent i mean he's he's really maximizing the plays that are there there are not receivers open that he can throw to so when you see him pull it down and run it's exactly correct there's no place to go with the football he checked down really well in this game most of his throws were check downs he should have checked down that was correct so for him we say he's a capable pilot he's two for two in both of these games being a very capable pilot and he's not the reason uh, that Florida's passing game is not connecting on deep plays. His one shot he could hit to close this box on this one, Alan. He hits, and I think you saw like what seemed to be a rather effusive celebration. Yeah, I think from Graham Mertz. I think a lot of it is that they were trying all game to complete a bomb. The guy's been trying to hit this, and he finally gets a look and a play to hit one. And that all that stuff is that's a continuing concern for me, uh, and I think it should be for everyone based upon the film, not just my opinion that we struggle there. Uh, I think if anyone's watching film, I would I would challenge them to come up with reasons why this looks good when you can roll other teams' film and you do not see the same struggle that you see with Florida. I mean, that that is just, it is what it is right now. And unless it gets better, this is going to be a problem for Florida moving forward in the passing game. So if you, yes, and we've hammered this and we probably need to leave it alone a little bit in terms of the amount of time we you know give to it. But if you're in the stadium and you're, especially if you're high up enough, I spent part of the game watching from one of the, from the sunshine seats with a couple of friends. What's up, Rob Wyand? I'm sure you're listening. You just if you don't watch the ball and watch the routes, you'll see what you can't see on TV is that there's not anybody open on most of these plays. And again, it's tough. Like the the play to Douglas, it, it needs a nice ball. It needs a different kind of ball, but it wasn't. He's not open. He's not open. It's but just he has leverage. Yeah, and I think right. in a different kind of offense, you make those plays and you're like, man, I'm going to give my guy a chance. Correct. Which is a good, not a bad decision at all. Correct. And so when you're, it feels like Mertz is just checking down, checking down, checking down, but he's making the right decision on most of these. Okay. We actually saw three quarterbacks out there. Uh, Max Brown got the most significant action, although he did still hand off a lot. and They didn't ask him to do very much, but any thoughts on him? I, I thought he... Looked a little cleaner mechanically and, you know, moving around back there than I think he has anytime we've gotten a glimpse of him before. 
Yeah, I mean, he fit into the the offense in this particular game with what they wanted to do. They they like they liked a little more of the AR package for him. They rolled him out quite a bit. Mm-hmm. They ran some of those staple plays Billy ran from last year. Uh, you know, all in all, you can't you can't really make anything from from most of these quarterbacks in games like these. So we try not to. Now, the second he plays against a real opponent, you can start to make some some judgments pretty quickly. Uh, but you know, I think nice work by Billy getting three guys in there. And giving them snaps and letting them throw, mm-hmm. I think that's great. Yeah, and I think what what I mentioned from Brown is like when you, if you saw him like in the spring game, like right. his mechanics looked long, and it might still show up in different plays, but he looked a little better throwing the ball. Yeah, there was nothing that. How about this? Nothing stuck out at you like, "Ooh, that's weird" mm-hmm. or anything, right? He he felt like a quarterback running an offense that's been in a system. And Billy talks a lot about that. I think he's been trying to generate some traction where if the second guy comes in or third guy comes in, maybe they're not quite as good as the first guy, but you if you wince. Everything looks sort of the same. Yep. That's the goal. All right. Anybody else stand out for you? Not necessarily. I don't want to take anything out from it. I mean, Webb, we mentioned, obviously, again, heavily featured. As he should be. And, I don't want to yeah. pile up the mileage on either of the top two guys. No. And, and was, was, you know, did great. He had a probably the one of the best plays of the game was probably the third and five he converts. We throw him a little screen pass, which is totally ate up by McNeese. They're all over that play. And he totally makes a guy miss when he's going to get zero yards and uh, turns it into like a 20 yard gain. So, you know, I think all in all, probably really fun day for him. He's been a very vocal supporter of Florida since he committed here. And nice to see him get that kind of reward. So interesting. I was looking at the snap counts. This really didn't show up any kind of production or targets, but Hayden Hansen, the retro freshman tight end, played a lot, like played and his snap count against Utah was unusually high. So it's something to look out for is he moving himself into like the primary tight end i don't know if that's good or bad alongside odom obviously who's our version of travis kelsey right i know i was like the all odom offense early on i was like man but i think he's a he's a probably better athlete than odom it's not oh yeah it'd be hard but and that's no offense to odom we kind of we're kind of harping on him it's this is like a dan warner thing odom is doing all he can do true and and he's obviously a big strong guy by the way and an athletic guy yes he's way more athletic than he's a very athletic human being but to be a a kind of the feature pass catching tight end getting a ton of balls his way game plan wise is does not obviously make sense if you're trying to win games at a high level and that's again no offense to him but yeah hansen obviously like you said getting snaps i don't think we saw any livingston in this game no which is weird and that that's a guy i think they're higher on or highest on for pass catching abilities so i'm not sure what was going so on so hansen that. might be you know maybe just like we don't need to give xander's snaps he did drop that one he dropped the touch, yeah dropped, that dropped an they easy didn't throw the ball to hansen at all I, I don't know if that means anything just something to keep an eye on all right this is great, I guess. Um, looking to the defense for bright spots, which is awesome. Uh, they keep McNeese State to 2 of 10 on third down. 1 of 1 on fourth down, though. Uh, 112 yards total, 66 passing, 46 running, 7 punts, only 2 sacks. Nate Glance was you know, 6 of 13 for 62 yards passing. Almost like Joe Burrow's stat line against Cleveland. <laughs> oh, shout after signing, right, shots. Max, after signing the largest contract in NFL history. <laughs> I actually love Joe Burrow, but man, that's wild. Yeah, that's not a good look. So him um, and Nate in the same category there. Okay, the defense was utterly dominant. I think this is what you wanted to see. You would not like to see an FCS team who doesn't have anybody who should threaten you do much. You know, they moved the ball a little bit on that first drive, and then after that, basically nothing until they got basically a freebie touchdown there at the end against walk-ons and fifth stringers. Um 
the biggest reason why you felt like the defense was so dominant. Yeah, and this is counter what we saw with the offense, in large part because on offense, of course, you take what the defense gives you. Like we said, they could have run the ball every single time. It's not Florida's fault that McNeese is going to play four guys in the back end. With defense, though, you have to respond to the offense's formation, and then your tactics, your play calling, your gap control, your run fit, your linebacker play— those are all things Florida has struggled with now for multiple years. We highlighted this in the Utah game, and it was excellent in this McNeese game. Does this mean that you're going to shut down a premier opponent? No, but what it does mean is Florida was largely in the right place at the right play, at the right time all game long. And once again, Alan, we saw something that I have not seen in the Florida defense since I can remember, since we've done the podcast, which is the angles of attack on defense were literally perfect. I mean, Coach Ham gets this. Every player is taking an outside shoulder angle at quarterbacks. The backside guys are staying on the backside. They're team tackling. It's 11 working as one. You saw it if you were there live or you're on TV. You're going to see it in the film review. And to me, the takeaway here is, yes, super overmatched opponent. But it is not a fluke how Florida's defense is executing their game plan and imposing their will on opponents from the front line to the back end. And it just got even better with their execution versus McNeese than Utah, as it should. Uh, but don't take that for granted. That's an improvement. And obviously, I think the summation here is what we saw versus McNeese is the difference I think a truly great coordinator can make. Now, Coach Hammer, Austin Armstrong here, is going to have to prove it versus some real teams. But make no mistake about it. The things he can control with the talent that he currently has within two games, this is a remarkable turnaround and competency from a defense. Remarkable I don't care who you're playing, super clean and utterly dominant versus an overmatched opponent. And again, take that for what it is, but that stuff matters. This is an entirely different defense, Allen, with play calling, tactics, execution, and how they approach the game of football than what we saw from Tony. So not that McNeese State is really known for this, but an offense can wrong foot you, even if you are way better than them physically. You're probably not, not going to run the ball down the throat, but you can do things to confuse them and get yardage and be creative. We've seen some you know, teams, especially last year and some previous years, where it's like it's a it's a chalk opponent, but they're moving the ball. Their quarterback looks you know, feisty. They're picking up yardage. They're not scoring a ton, but they're moving it. I mean, if, uh, McNeese State could do none of that. I think a big reason why is that the defense was in the right place. They were playing – the right angles they were t- they were understanding what the offensive was doing and responding accordingly and you know every offense is going to get some yards you're not going to keep them to zero yards but Florida was pretty close to that when you look at the totals I, I don't think outside of that first drive when they moved it just a little bit I never felt like they were going to even string together three first downs and that was amazing and I, I don't I haven't felt that way about a defensive performance in a while and again I don't want to get too you know, over my skis here with the defense, but uh, that was really encouraging to see. You never were like, oh, man, well, got lucky there because they missed this or well, this was, oh, man, I don't know. That was somebody else. They probably would have abused us on that. All right, that's the good. Let me let me bring up the one question mark I have, right? So I asked for turnovers. There were none. Well, safety, let me give them credit here. A safety is kind of like a turnover. You get points, you get the ball back. That's excellent. You know, great play by Jamari Lyons getting in there, knifing in there and, and making the tackle. And so on one level, I'm I'm let me just talk both through things here. Let me just process here with James 
about the turnovers. On one hand, I'm concerned. On the other hand, they barely ran any plays. So generating turnovers would be difficult to do if you're forcing them to go three and out. And they're not doing anything crazy. That They're not being aggressive. They're not sitting back in the pocket trying to do something. Fumbles are often lucky anyway. Now, again, if you're a great defense, you will accumulate them over time. I, I will say this is the place I think that's going to put the ceiling on our defense. And that really comes down to pass rush, right? That if we're not able to generate enough pressure, that's often where those turnovers come in outside of doing something very confusing or tricky. And, you know, two sacks, it's fine. Uh, against the way that the game flow was this, they weren't again, dropping back a million times still, even though they're behind by a ton. So I, this would be the place. Is this the canary in the coal mine a little bit that we're not going to be able to generate the kind of pass rush we want for this to be a dominant defense. Again, I, I want to like mitigate that with some of the circumstances of the game. We weren't sending a ton of pressure. We weren't trying to be hyper aggressive, but that's a little bit. Okay. I'm going to pay attention to that moving forward. Most closely with this team. And if I'm looking for what might limit them. Well, there, yeah, there's let's, let's parse that out a bit. One, okay. Uh, I want to I want to make one major point, and that for me, three and outs are essentially a turnover by a good defense. If your team is getting three and outs at the rate Florida did, mm-hmm. and let's look at the drive chart real fast, right? The first play that they run, first sequence they run, Allen, uh, they have nine plays. Then it's five plays, which is some penalty stuff. It's basically a three and out. Three plays is a three and out. One play to end the half. That's three in a row. Start the next half. Three plays. Four plays. Two plays is a safety. Then six plays. Now you're down way deep in the end. So basically, no turnovers, but three and out, 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 three and out. Safety. That's unbelievable. Those are essentially turnovers from a really good defense. Secondarily, the more man defense that you play, the fewer turnovers you will generate. Zone teams generate the most turnovers because they're all looking at the quarterback. Zone teams with an excellent pass rush, to your point, generate by far the most turnovers because the quarterback panics, doesn't see guys, you drop guys, whatever. So I think for Florida, you did highlight a weakness Florida has, which we've been talking about, which is their ability to rush the passer, especially losing Boone. I think this line would have been pretty different with Boone. Prince is getting doubled. He's getting good push, I think, on his own, but we just don't have another guy. So that is going to be a problem. But I actually think that turnovers are, while they're important, doesn't always mean your defense is great. And all you have to do is look at the NFL for this example. Every single year, oftentimes the top five defenses in the NFL are not the ones generating the most turnovers. That's very interesting, but it's true. The more like high variance defenses will either have tons of turnovers or nothing. Uh, And so turnovers can be, in baseball, can kind of be like what they would consider to be like a luck factor. I don't believe in luck, but the reality is like sometimes you're generating turnovers and maybe you don't deserve, right? Guys are fumbling the ball. You necessarily strip out very well. Just fluky things are happening. There can be regression to the mean from year to year. For Correct. Sure so that. I am not concerned is what I want to say. I am not concerned right now with Florida not generating turnovers through these two football games um, for several reasons, but the most of which is everything is so sound tactically. I wouldn't want them to do anything else. And there have not really been tremendous opportunities to get them. Devin Moore dropped one, right, uh, versus Utah. That was one he could have had. But outside of that, it's not like Florida just has missed opportunities to get turnovers. And again, in large part, the second half of Utah, through this McNeese game, there was a span of three and out, three and out, three and out, three and out. I mean, most of those drives were three and out punts and no points being scored. So Florida basically going six quarters almost and no points being scored against them. 
pretty solid. I don't care who you're playing against. So I'm going to take that for now, but we will find out. The answers to all these questions will occur this week versus Tennessee. We will see what this defense is made of, and we will see if that pass rush, as you're mentioning, which I think is fine, but fine is is generally going to be difficult versus premier opponents. I don't think Florida has a ton of premier opponents on the schedule. As we talked about before the year, it's a hard schedule because there's so many opponents that are like Florida, talented with issues. Is it enough to hurt Florida? I don't know, but I am I am not concerned right now. Okay, that's good. And I I 100% agree that like if you're only winning because you're generating a lot of like chaos through turnovers, that's often not repeatable. Correct. And I, I do think teams with elite pass rush will generate their more than their fair share of turnovers they because will. they're affecting the quarterback, their sack, strip fumbles. Absolutely true. You're forcing bad decisions. So the one will follow the other. And again, like a, like we were saying, it's not like the, there was even a lot of plays. And even when they would get into third and long, they weren't like trying to be dropped back and throw it down the field. They were they were dumping it off and being safe. Okay, just something to keep your eye on with this defense. <laughs> the note that you've got here, I'm just going to read it. Changes we like to see. Nothing. Amen. It's amazing. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, Tennessee is going to provide a much different test for this defense. We'll get to that in a minute. All right. Special teams uh, kicked all our extra points. Um, no, we didn't. Wait, I was going to say, we did not. We, we did not. Snapped, I w- we did make all of our extra points that the holder received the snap <laughs> from. But we comically started the game off, obviously, yeah. by launching one over the holder's head. And right away, the game changers were changing the game. In yeah, sorry. That was, it's four for four. He's technically four for four, I guess. But yeah. And that led us not to get the mythical 50 points everybody sort of wanted in this game was to get 50. We were at 49 because we <laughs> missed an extra point and didn't get a two point conversion and yeah, some other stuff. Right. And I think that's an example of chasing the game. I didn't really care because the game was not going to be. Happened, but that's one of my little pet peeves. Crawshaw, one punt for 51 yards. I, there's special teams other than that did not really show up. We didn't kick any field goals. We didn't do anything bad or dumb. But McNeese continued the trend of pinning us on the one-yard line. Like, is every team just going to punt perfectly? Seriously. I mean, this is sick. It was crazy. <laughs> okay. Coaching decisions. I have one for us here. Uh, Mertz and most of the stars played deep into this game. Often with an... With a team who is much more established, I would be very critical of this, that you're exposing them to unnecessary risk. I'm going to ask you your thoughts. I'm going to go ahead and take a position here. I I like this. I think we needed the reps. I think we needed to continue to see what we can and can't do. I was fine with them playing. I thought they played just about the right amount. Because as we're not going to win anything with Max Brown, we have to figure out what we have with Graham Mertz and continue to let him get live action here. Were you okay with the amount that they played? Oh, loved it. I mean, I, uh, exactly what you said is right here. We're not in the stage where we've got some incredible first team that is just going to murder people. And we need one and a half quarters and sit them down because we don't want them to get hurt. This is a significant work in progress across the offensive line, across the receiving core, uh, and with the quarterbacks. I mean, it's all new still. And so, yeah, wise decision to get them lots of reps. And I think, Billy and the staff and Graham really wanted to hit a deep ball, I think for their own psyche and confidence to hit one. And I'm not sure he would have come out until they hit one. So I'm glad they did. There you go. Okay. Final thoughts here. Just to put like a very firm exclamation upon this Napier talked about execution, regardless of opponent. 
did we accomplish that? Would you say again, yeah, the ex- in that category? Yes, because the execution itself was as good as it really could have been, right? Not a lot of penalties, very clean game, very precise. Uh, execution itself, yes. I think this was like the dream game for Billy. This is how he imagines winning. Now, not as much running. We had 51 running plays and you know 23 passing plays. He doesn't want to run that much. Uh, but I think he dreams of ball control. He dreams of running the football. Well, he would like to run that much if we're up by that much. Well, right, for sure. And he, he wants that kind of game, right? March down the field, long drives. Basically, he, he does. He prefers, we saw this with Louisiana, he prefers a sort of mixture of a very boring football game with vertical passing. The problem is, ever since Florida, ever since he's arrived at Florida, there is no vertical passing, despite trying, despite AR throwing more vertical passes than almost anyone last year. We haven't hit that yet. So, the execution itself, though, by the players themselves, was relatively perfect, like we talked about. Right? It'd be one thing, Alan, if Mertz was missing receivers, the guys are wide open, uh, you know, we're not executing, but we did. And in fact, every check down, as we mentioned, every run by Mertz was the correct one. The running backs hit the right holes. By and large, the offensive linemen pass protected correctly. They passed the guys off in the right way. They opened up the right holes, whether they were running power or they were running zone. And that's the kind of execution on a film you want to see as a coach. So as far as executing Napier's game plan in this particular game, I would grade them out very highly. I think Napier would as well. Now the question becomes, what's the game plan for Tennessee? And does that accomplish a win? But either way, yes, I think for sure, significant uh, accomplishment with regards to execution given the game plan. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, let's keep going here. A little bit of news. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let you give a little eulogy here. <laughs> Jadarius Perkins, oft mentioned on this very particular podcast, announced he was leaving the team. We'll enter the transfer portal, I guess, when he's allowed to. You know, pour one out for our boy Perkins. Yeah, we'll, we'll pour one out. You know, this one doesn't, obviously, when we lost Hopper, I, I wanted to have like a a period of mourning like sackcloth and ashes because we needed him so bad and I loved him. And when we lost my boy Chester Kimbrough, who was yeah, a productive player him. at Michigan State, I loved him too. Perkins was a guy that we always saw potential with 
at nickel and obviously we had serious issues right we just wanted to see anybody other than who was actually playing and we knew that perkins could play man defense really well which is still true to this day we also knew last year on film that we kept bringing it up that he was seemingly he really couldn't figure out where to go when to go somewhere you can't play that way and we talked about that we were excited that we saw him aligned with Jaden hill the guy who is a very cerebral player which we've seen and in game one we we highlighted the issues that perkins had once again incorrectly running the plays and so this one is not the same level of sadness because obviously Perkins there's enough data to know he has a major chink in his armor and again if you could just correctly identify who he's covering and you put him in man he he is solid he's excellent at that and I think that's why he hung on the roster as long as he did Uh, but obviously I don't know what happened behind closed doors but you know for him he'll move on he'll go elsewhere and I hope for the guy who figures it out but you know, he's going to need to figure out how to get lined up. Yeah. That's my eulogy for him. Perkins, I love you, man. You can really play man. You're, you're a great tackler coming downhill, but unless you can figure out how to handle pre-snap shifts and how to work with your teammates on what you're covering, what you're doing, you're just not, you're not going to see the field. So For sure. And, you know, probably one of those players, there's been a few of them over the years, who gets more mentions on this podcast than snaps on the field. And uh there we go. That's we the, like to identify, but again, I, of, I think uh, the guy does. I think I think Coach Ham saw that too, right? There's talent there at that. But I also like if I want to imagine the Coach Ham after Game One is like, hey, look, you see this stuff on film. You just can't be a part of the eleven if you do this. And maybe Perkins is like, bro, I'm better. I, I have no clue, but I like to imagine that uh, you know the staff is processing guys correctly, and that's why right now I don't have like a so far I don't have like a please put someone else in. Yeah. The, and I love that. I, I think a larger that's that's because. I like what I see. And again, I, I reserve the right to be totally wrong. And you guys can call me on it. The defense lays an egg and goes flat in their face. But I mean, analytically, it's beautiful right now. Okay. All right. Let's talk about those week two results. How did we do? How did we do? Well, Alan, let's look at it. You went six and eight and I went six and eight, but different picks to get to six and eight. So it's been, it's been tough sledding. Look, college football right now, mm. you guys have been watching it. This is a wild season. Let's break down the results and you'll see more of why. On Monday night after our podcast, Duke smoked Clemson. This was wild. A team that myself and a lot of others thought was going to bounce back this season One of my for playoff a lot of reasons. Me too. And they are out. They're done. They're dead on arrival. Seemingly uh, bad stuff going on here. 28-7 Duke wins. You and I both had Clemson, so out on that. I mean, a crazy, crazy, crazy game with the amount of turnovers and stuff. Anyway, but they probably still should have lost the game regardless. They yeah. played well. All right, Utah goes on the road to Baylor. You and I both pick Utah. And really, Baylor should have won this game. Mm-hmm. But credit to Utah. The fact that Utah is 2-0. Game against Florida. That Florida's healthy, and they're not. And then Utah, obviously, facing a Baylor team who really did not play well the week before, but had a great game plan, was punishing Utah. If you watch that as a Florida fan, Utah's offense was anemic. They couldn't do anything. They were totally one-dimensional. This just looked like a kind of football team that we had said on the podcast. It became a, a pseudo-must-win because you cannot miss that many key players on your team. Don't sleep on the power of key personnel on a football team, Allen. I will And expect not. to keep winning. And Utah, gritty as could be, switches to Nate Johnson. They start running a lot of the same kind of wildcat stuff. He makes enough passes to make it work. And they steal a win. Very exciting. Right down there to the wire. What well, keeps them alive, you steal know, I mean, win. that they've won the Pac-12 two years in a row. If they do it again, again with Oregon and USC, they're going to be in the playoff. And yeah. so last year, the Florida loss killed them. It killed them. And they lost again. But like that, 
had to blunt so much of their momentum, even though they won the Pac-12. They had no shot at the playoff. And and sky high momentum now. And, I love it. And Baylor should have been a pass interference the other that game, where Baylor mm. should have had another shot there. They didn't get it. But either way, it's a push on the bet for us. Right? Nebraska, Colorado, you and I, of course, obviously, on the Dion train, still proven otherwise. They smacked Nebraska 36-14. Man, I was watching the first half and came away very impressed with Nebraska's defense, especially their front seven. They were handling it. And their offense was as dumb as anything. The, the quarterback play was as bad as you could imagine with key moments. And then I think that Nebraska unit just ran out of gas and Colorado put it on in the second half. Yeah, they did. And, and credit here to Shador Sanders, who, yeah. who obviously was not, he was not a highly recruited guy. He was recruited, but he certainly was not, oh man, Deion son's a baller. He's going to be, you know, a top FBS product. That guy is handling the limelight. I mean, total gamer, really accurate throw of the football. Smart back there. And that offense on film, Allen, there's guys that are wide open. Now, they're going to play some better defenses, but guys are wide open that offense. Well, I don't know. The I question, mean, yeah, you're right. The question with them is can they protect up front? That's where they're weak. But, man, I'm telling you what, the play design is awesome. I mean, people are wide open. Yeah, and if they lose, it'll. I think Colorado is vulnerable defensively. Oh, they're definitely vulnerable yeah. in general. But, again, the fact they're 2-0, it's great. don't lighten this load now. No, don't no, act no. like, oh, whatever. This no. is a remarkable It's remarkable. If, if you're pretty, but I want to just cool off the people who are like, you know, drinking all the Kool-Aid. Well, that's but. insane. The talent on that roster is not enough for that. That's why it's worth celebrating now. Because totally. They're going to lose to the better teams they play as they should. But this is a spirited football team that is infinitely better than almost what anybody outside of Deion Sanders would have predicted. Ole Miss on the road at Tulane. Super unfortunate here for me, Alan. I picked Tulane. I did not know at the time we made the pick that Pratt was not going to play. They're all-conference quarterback right. who means everything to them. And despite that fact, Tulane was all over this football game. I thought they were going to win through three quarters. I thought they were, too. I think that means Tulane probably does win if they have Pratt. I mean, that's a, that's a safe assessment to say. Of course, every game is different. Uh, but Ole Miss with a gutty, gutsy win at the end there. Tulane's good. And Tulane's a good football team. Again, doing it with a backup quarterback. That's extra impressive versus the SEC. But a big win for Lane Kiffin. And Tulane, I think, still tons of momentum now. They'll get Pratt back. They've got a much easier schedule. They could win all the rest of their games. Uh, but they really wanted that one because they wanted to crash the playoff party. Uh, that's impossible now, unfortunately. All right, A&M. A&M on the road versus Miami. Miami was seven new coaches. They had the purge from last year. The purge pays off. Miami wins 40-33. to 33. This was a fun game. I was hoping both teams, again, I dislike both these teams immensely, would somehow find a way to just – I don't know, settle out at a tie somewhere and, you know, both hate it. I was impressed by Miami. This Texas saying Miami is, I think, good on offense, but it, it's got to be striking if you're A&M on defense that with the talent they've accumulated, they would be this bad. And, and they have a coordinator who, uh, you know, is established, and this is rough for them. This is, I mean, this is year five of Jimbo, and for them to be losing to Miami, these are games that, you need to win in year five. Yeah, absolutely. Total train wreck here. And the defense really, I think, three turnovers, obviously, by AM's offense, but they did score enough. The defense, which seemingly was was more consistent, had just was not. Do you think this means Miami's resurging? They're bad. I mean, certainly a much better product on the field for this game than what we saw last year. Did right. They look way them, better. Right. Um, I wanna I wanna see more from them. But I think, you know, college football is more fun when Miami is good, despite the fact that I have such a distaste for them. So 
Yeah, and I do not. I still see obviously that helmet and growing up. Yeah, in Coral, yeah, yeah, growing yeah. up in Coral Gables, it still gives me all the feels. I don't like them now, but the helmet brings back great warm memories. All right, Iowa at your clones. It was a rock fight. Iowa gets to twenty and not twenty-five on the offensive coordinator watch there. Uh, twenty thirteen dubs though for Iowa. Yeah, I love it. The Iowa keeps coming in just a little bit under. So that's, that's going to pile up by the end there. Oh, it really is. Yes, SMU on the road at Oklahoma. Oklahoma favored by 16 and a half. You and I both loaded up here. Oklahoma wins 28-11. Yeah, I mean, that, if you're the Oklahoma defense, I think you're feeling great about that result. Um, if you're their offense, you probably wanted a little bit more out of that, but you'll take it. Yeah, 2-0 from Venables here now after a, 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 tr- a rough year one. Uh, and those are, you know, that's a win. SMU's a team. That's not a nobody. Cincinnati at Pitt. Cincinnati goes on the road to Pitt, beats Pitt 27-21, undefeated in the season so far. Emory Jones, that's right, he's at Cincinnati. 18-26, wait for it, wait for it, 125 yards, two touchdowns and one pick, but does enough to get the job done. That's, that's like a, that's a vintage Emory Jones line. Vintage, vintage. All right, UCF uh, on the road to Boise State. I picked Boise State. As they were three-and-a-half-point dogs, they lost at home. So a good win by Gus Malzahn and UCF, but the score was 18-16. Yeah. I I was kicking myself for not taking Boise there. They just threw me off of them. I mean, they lost, but I at home they should have been not that big of underdogs. Yeah, when was the last time Boise State was 0-2? I don't know. That's uh, a tough tough opening slate yeah. for them, though. Arizona on the road to Mississippi State. Mississippi State favored by 10 I took Arizona here. Why? Because obviously, Alan, the Pac-12, the dismantled Pac-12 is the best it's ever been in its history this year. And they lose, but they lose 31-24 in an, in an absolute barn burner of a game at the end. I mean, Overtime. really, right? All the way to OT. Really exciting stuff at the end there. Yeah, and I, I think this, I do think Arizona is going to be a plucky team this year, as is Mississippi State. And that bore out. Um, Mississippi State, I'm sure, is thankful for the win. Yeah, Mississippi State 2-0, Alan, 2-0. Uh, Stanford on the road at USC and the Caleb Williams show. A lot of people at, at my house had not really watched Caleb Williams play. And we had on the TV there. I have three TVs on the wall. We love watching football. And they were sort of early on, the comment was, I, I've heard a lot about this guy. It's like Pat Mahomes. I can't buy it. Have you watched him play? No, not really. By halftime, there was a lot of belief that this guy was absolutely He's the truth. And he did everything in the first half of that game. I mean, he's outrageous out there outrageous i mean if i'm an nfl team my team is not good i am losing every single game i possibly can in attempts to get this guy he's that good all right auburn favored by six and a half on the road to cal i tried to stay up and watch this game on behalf of our friend grover and i just could not make it early fourth quarter i was like listen this game is brutal neither team can move the ball at all woke up to find auburn had won but not covered grover sent us some hilarious material about how absurd this was teams were one and 65 when turning the ball over four times and uh, having, what, 15 fewer f- fewer than 15 first downs, I think, was the stat. Hilarious. And Auburn is now the second team to win with that stat line on the I road mean, across the country. In some ways, this is like the ultimate Auburn win, just doing things that no one else has done before to the agent of chaos of college football. I Yeah, Cal's not a good team. But if you're going to play that poorly and win, I think you got to be pretty happy about it. Yeah, for Auburn, you're 2-0 and and you're rebuilding, so it's year one, whatever. Oregon on the road at Texas Tech. Texas Tech, a team a lot of people liked in the Big 12 as a dark horse. This game was a crazy bad beat. Oregon does win 38-30. 
but should not have been a cover by Oregon. No. But they get a cover at the very end in a in a in a classic like Scott Van Pelt bad beat with Stanford Steve scenario. And you and I get a win out of that one. Yeah, Oregon, I think, looks nice. Texas Tech is still a nice team. They rebound from just a rough week one showing. And, yeah, I think they're going to still be fun to watch this year. And okay, The, the marquee result, Texas wow. at Nick Saban's Alabama. Back and forth game for most of it. Texas was the better team, and they do get the W, 34-24. I knew no matter what I did, I was going to be wrong. And I picked Alabama because I said I wanted Texas to win because I'm sick of Alabama. So in all reality, for me, it worked out. The Texas curse continues. Uh, but wow, are you are you believing in this Texas team or are you just selling this Alabama team? A little of both. Uh, predicting the Alabama dynasty being dead has you know been a fool's errand over the last you know twenty years or however long it's been. <laughs> but they don't look right, and so often it's not oh, man, one game will tell the story. But this game tells a lot of the story of their problems. Offensively, they can't cut it. I don't know. I, defensively, they were fine through much of it. But Texas, man, Quinn Ewers and that offense looked good. I, w- I still want to see more from them, and we might not see it until we get to the playoff. But they're a talented team, and this is a really good win for them. I think this Alabama team... You know what? Their schedule isn't that tough either anymore. They might, maybe we'll see a rematch. I don't know. But I wouldn't write either of these teams. I wouldn't write Alabama off and I wouldn't crown Texas. But certainly this is an amazing win for Texas. And if you're Alabama, I think you have to start to wonder, have we passed our peak here and we're on the way down? Yeah, it's funny that people are saying that. I guess I don't don't see it that way because of of – the obvious talent on the roster. But I, I am so curious with all the quarterbacks they can pull in, how they wound up sticking with with Milrow. Because that, to me, he's not a quarterback. He's just not a quarterback. Not at this level. Not no. in my opinion. He's not that kind of guy. And how Alabama winds up with that kind of guy. Well, I, this is tough. You know, you replace decision making by them. You replace the number one overall pick. You're going to take a step back, but they've had this crazy run. Sure. They've had always had, they've always had a guy in the wings though. And so I think not that he's going to be a number one pick level, but you would like to have someone more accomplished, which they've had. Every and year. this guy, you know, whatever the other guy, Ty Simpson, I guess, you know, highly rated guy didn't work out. Yeah. The, the younger guys are not ready. Right. Took the Notre Dame transfer. They have like five quarterbacks on the roster. And this is, so maybe, Halfway through the season, we're going to see somebody else, and it's going to be a different look. So that's the other side. So that's what's interesting, is, and this is why I kind of wanted to bring that up, is like we talk a lot about you have to load the deck to make sure you don't get a big miss at your key positions. And even when you do, sometimes you can still miss. So take this lesson from Alabama. Maybe this is the end of Nick Saban's dynasty. Maybe he's tired of it. He's not putting in all the effort. I don't think so. He played a super talented Texas team on the rise. He's a super talented Alabama team. He just does not have a quarterback literally at all. And it's really hard to win premier football games if you do not have a premier quarterback. Bama's done it before, but they did it with good game managers. Milrow is not that kind of guy. And that's like the worst case scenario, I think, for Alabama and how they want to play. And it's just they miss, and I think it's going to be a challenge for them. It may not stop them in the SEC, as we're going to talk about, but uh, I I would not be writing off Nick Saban until he literally quits coaching. The guy's way too competitive. No, 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 no. He's still racking up talent. So I think a lot of people saying it's over – I think that's more of a credit to Georgia 
and the incredible job Kirby Smart has done to just out Saban Saban. That's the reality, in my opinion. I don't think they're going to go off a cliff, but I just wonder if they, I mean, in terms of valuation with some of the hires that he's made and other, other things, you just have to be so sharp. Yep, you can't miss. At, okay. You're right. right. Key personnel. Don't sleep on that. Coordinators included, right? You have to have so many special people on your roster to win titles. And Saban was great at that for so many years. So far, chink in the armor. All right. SEC roundup. Vandy loses to Wake Forest 36-20. Oh, poor Vandy. I mean, Wake Forest, is it's a fine loss for a team like Vandy. I know. Clark Lee probably feels like they should still be undefeated. But <laughs> the SEC is sus. Let's talk about You've that. You've been saying that. I don't, I don't We're going to read these results no. and tell me they're not sus. Dude. They are they're sus. UGA over Ball State 45-3. I guess that's a Close okay. game for a long time. Yeah. UGA is classic, though. Don't don't be Tyler Rummery and read into the fact every year that UGA sucks because early on they struggle to wipe out some overmatched opponent. Don't fall into that trap. That's just, UGA is not the glitzy USC team. They just bulldoze you. So don't think, oh, wow, Ball State was close. They suck. That's not the case. Another very close one, Kentucky barely over Eastern Kentucky, 28-17. Close game for a long time. Eastern Kentucky. Kentucky again, looking sus. Missouri barely over MTSU, Middle Tennessee State, 23. Favored by like 17 points in that game, 19, yeah. Sus. South Carolina puts it on Furman, 47-21. Fine. Yeah. LSU over Grambling, 72-10, whatever. Nothing to see. Uh, And the game we're going to get to in a minute. Tennessee over Austin P thirty to thirteen. Sus. It was it was tied right, but with the thirty seconds left to go in the half, they were tied. Yep. Okay. Tell SEC. About, let's talk about this for one second, though. What the Pac twelve now has? I think eight teams ranked in the top twenty five. They're looking much better for the first time ever. The SEC has only five, and the SEC with an out of conference record, what three and six, something like it's that. It's not good, and the SEC usually cleans up in these early cleans up. You know, out of conference games and, you know, wins these Utah games and wins, you know, the North Carolina, South Carolina and the LSU, Florida States types of things. And that hasn't happened this year. I, I'm not ready to like jump off a cliff here for the SEC. They still might win the championship because just because Georgia might be better than everybody else. But anyway, all right. Tell us about Daytona. Daytona Steve had a winning week again, although he is basically betting peanuts quite a difference from last year uh, he wins with notre dame over nc state and oregon over texas tech uh small money there and then he has bama minus four at the half which he did not win so he ekes out like a 30 dollar win there so he's positive on the season two and oh we'll see what this week can holds. he get all the way to a thousand dollars can he get climb. to a grand from 300 bucks we're gonna find out stay tuned for his picks uh coming up here at the end of our tennessee segment all right coaching corner I asked, and you guys delivered, Alan. We have multiple coaching corners here. There was a lot of crazy stuff that went down with the first week of college football. I mean, first week of the NFL and second week of college football. Let's start with that Clemson-Duke game. At the end of the Clemson-Duke game, Duke, on a Hail Mary play for Clemson, basically, or it's going to be halftime, aligns where they have three of their defensive linemen all the way on the right side of Clemson's formation and nobody on the left side. And the question basically comes down to this. Like, how do you counter that? Is that a good idea by Duke? And what would you do for the offense to counter a team just completely overloading one side on your Hail Mary play? Yeah, I'm trying to come up with a tactical disadvantage for this specific scenario. Now, obviously, there's lots of them if you do it on a regular play. I'm sure there is a downside, but (laughs) I can't come up with one either. Yeah, I think the idea from Duke is they're hoping that they know that they're going to force you into one half of the field. Uh-huh. So they're going to say, great, slide your protection to the left, roll your pocket to the left, and now, now you're going to throw left. 
and I'm going to put most of my defenders on that half of the field and leave one guy in the backside so I don't have to cover both sides of the Hail Mary. It also guarantees me you're not going to roll out late to one side. And most effective Hail Marys come from a rollout right or left, and you're not sure which one. So I think it's it's smart. I mean, I think at any level of football, if you can sort of know that you can get a pass rush from one side, you can force something. So zone blitzes often do this. Hey, we're going to rush them from one side. That way our defense knows the ball most likely goes this way. It's perhaps surprising other teams haven't tried this before at the end of a game. Um, but again, it does guarantee, though, that your quarterback will get the Hail Mary off. It's a guarantee that you're going to slide left and, and throw the ball, whereas the other opportunities may take that chance away mm. entirely. So you do sacrifice a chance, I think, for a sack or pressure in guaranteeing you funnel the ball. So risk reward there. But either way, creative concept from Duke. All right, Lions at Chiefs, Allen. What a great game this was. The Lions go for it on the plus 45. It's fourth and three, right? They go for it on the plus 45. It's fourth and three in this game. They are winning by one point. First, did you like that decision rather than punting? Remind me how much time was left on the clock. There's like, at this point in time, there was like four and a half, five minutes from memory. There was a lot of time still. You couldn't have won the game right there. I don't know. I, I'm i normally a fan of the aggression there, but I probably would have punted there. Yeah, it was interesting to me. I, I mean, I think the way the Chiefs were playing, punting was probably the right move because you can't win the game right then. It's kind of the thought. And you're also not guaranteed to score a touchdown there either. The Lions only scored two offensive touchdowns. But the far more interesting scenario is the Chiefs, after one Kadarius Tony dropped 500 passes in this game oh, gosh, man. and really cost them, and Mahomes was just dying with each one, the Chiefs went for it on 4th and 25 on their own 30-yard line with 2 minutes and 9 seconds left. And all three timeouts left. Did Andy Reid lose his mind here, Alan, or do you like this? I don't like it. I mean, I This is indefensible. Chiefs, if you're the Chiefs, you can do whatever you want, but I, I didn't understand it. Yeah, and I know they're worried that the Lions had worn out their defense and that they were going to be able to run the ball and run the clock out. But, I mean, you just can't. I, you seemingly can't do this. There was an idea that came out on the Twitter sphere that perhaps the Chiefs should have done this instead. On 4th and 25 in the run 30, take the snap, run back to the 9-yard line, and run out of bounds. So then the Lions will get the ball first and goal from the 9. You have all three timeouts left, ensuring... They either score a touchdown or they get a field goal, and you're still only down one score. Do you like that? Idea? <laughs> That's very clever, actually. I don't. I'd have to think through. That's such an unorthodox thing, but I, on the surface, I like it. Yeah, it could work out. Obviously, if the Lions score a touchdown and go for two, which they almost certainly would, and they get it, you outright lose the game. I think the the mathematical move here is still pretty clear. You punt the football, and you say, "Give me a stop. I have three timeouts left. We get the ball back." You have Pat Mahomes. You're down one. Yeah, so it was such a weird game. Such overall. a bizarre decision by Andy Reid, but I think they were really rattled by the fact that they just they no Travis Kelsey receivers dropping passes. I mean that that was wild. The Lions did, of course, run the clock out. By the way, they were able to get first downs running the ball. So perhaps Andy Reid was correct. All right, your Jacksonville Jaguars. Let's go versus AR and the Colts, and what was a really entertaining football game. Some zany stuff happened in this one, but this is the fourth zany quarter, right? Fourth quarter with 55 seconds left, and Jacksonville is up 31-21 after a game that was back and forth all the way until then. The Colts have the ball. It's fourth and goal. The Jacks won. AR has been knocked out of the game. Some would say he's made of glass with an injury that I think they haven't really disclosed yet, so hopefully he's okay. The Colts have just one timeout left. Just one timeout left. 
The Colts elect to go for the touchdown on fourth down instead of the field goal and onside kick. They don't get it, and Jacksonville wins. Would you have kicked the field goal and then gone for the onside kick, or would you have gone for the touchdown? I, mean, I think you have to go for the touchdown there. I mean, anytime you're that close, I think you have you have to consider that as your first option because you can kick a field goal from much further out. That's my basic math on that. Yeah, I agree there. I, I, I mean, obviously, I think if you're further, I think if it was on the five or six yard line, I'm kicking the field goal because fourth and five or six in the NFL is like 40, 40 percent, maybe 38, 39, especially in the red zone. Uh, but I think in this stage, on the on the one yard line on fourth and goal, I don't know the exact math on it, but you are you are more likely to score than not to score. And that's why I think you have to take that. You know you need two scores. You know you got to get an onside kick, which is less than 5%. Uh, I'm fine with that decision there. If you hit the field goal, I could be fine with that too. Uh, but in reality, the nature of onside kicks in the NFL now just lead these decisions to be sort of moot. It's just so hard to get it. But I don't mind it. All right, Ole Miss at Tulane. It's 20-17 to 17 in the fourth quarter with five minutes and 20 seconds left. Ole Miss is up. Fourth and four at the Tulane 21. Lane goes for it on fourth down and scores a touchdown, putting Ole Miss up 27-17. Do you like this call? I think I do. I, again, all of these are so tricky. If you're not like watching the game, it's hard to totally comment on it, not to like give myself an out here. But in that part of the field, it's not an automatic kick, if, especially if you don't trust your kicker there. I, and if you feel like your offense can pick that up, I like it a lot. I love this call because it is the rule of scores. Let's freaking go. There you go, rule of scores. 2017, you score a touchdown, you go up two scores, you get a field goal, you're still only up one score, and a touchdown beats you. The the EV of this situation is significantly big, as the guy who writes in this corner says, correct, which I love that. This is the max EV move. It's the right time in the game to do it. I loved it. Thought it was really smart, really solid, and it worked out. All right, A&M. I have to. I, I love that people. I love that you guys sent this to me because all of you, you know that it. I hate the clap snap. I literally hate it. If I was a coach on offense, the first thing I would do is ditch the clap snap. It is so stupid to me. It causes so many problems each and every week. I cannot, for the life of me, understand why guys keep doing it. Well, comically, AM was going for two versus Miami. The Miami defender is clapping twice, not to fake the snap, but to get his corner to hear him to say something. And the center snaps the ball, which AM is not even remotely ready for the ball to be snapped. They wind up not getting this two-point conversion. It wound up not mattering. However, it was talked about after the game. Why'd your center snap the ball? Well, because Miami clapped. Which, again, to me, so dumb. Your thoughts? I mean, I would like to hear a more robust defense of it from someone who is like a big proponent of it. I feel like I'm a little jaded by our conversations about it. Um, I'm sure there are some more positives, but in this situation, you can clearly see one of the big downsides. Stupid. All right. Do you, okay. Oh, let me do the next one here. Oregon going for two to start the game. This is like their tradition. I uh, love that it goes through multiple coaches though. They're still just still doing it. (laughs) It's amazing. Um, I, I like this. I think it puts pressure on the other opponent, especially they know that you're going to do it. Do you like it? I love it because we have not talked about game theory much at all this season. Mm. We love game theory in this podcast. And game theory very clearly states that early in any contest athletically, you want to be aggressive. And the reason is the risk reward is there for what you just said. Anytime you can put inordinate amounts of pressure on your opponent for little risk, it's worth doing it. Whether you go six or eight to you as a team isn't really that typically impactful at the end of a football game. 
It is very impactful, though, to your opponent. If you score eight and they score seven, and they're not used to it. They're down. So the idea is if you do it every single game, sometimes you miss, sometimes you make it, you're really fine. You're not rattled. But the opponent never sees it. They're down eight, seven. They feel like they're chasing the game. That little extra boost early helps you. You still have a super long game to make optimal scoring decisions at the end. So I love this. I think it's very solid game theory-wise. Take a risk early. Uh, I think it's right in line with that. I love that Oregon still does this. Even Dan Lanning does it. You can't imagine Kirby Smart ever doing this, but he does it there uh, in Oregon. There must be some analytics guy at Oregon that convinces every coach that they should do it. I love it. I mean, again, I think it's a wise thing to do. All right, coaching corner, again, two left. We're down to the end here. (laughs) This particular game, Oklahoma State, the Cowboys, Arizona State, mid-third quarter. Mike Gundy's Cowboys score to go up 16-15, but they go for two. I know you love this one. To make it a three-point game. They then get flagged for a false start and choose to kick the extra point. Your thoughts on this in general? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of like uh, options here. I mean, let me punt it over to you. Give me your first. Well, I think in general in the third quarter, it, this this is where I, I... It's a little too early to worry about final scoring per se. However, without watching the game and the game flow... If you feel like the opposing team is probably not going to score too often and you may not score too often, going for two does make sense. I have to imagine that's exactly what Gundy thought. If that was his line of thinking, that makes sense. Then when you have to go, you get false started. Now you got to go for that extra seven yards, seven total yard play now, right? It's from the from the seven and not the, not the two. Your odds of making that are much smaller. You may not ever practice a play for your two-point conversion from there. So now you're going to go with a random play that's not a two-point conversion play. You don't feel as good about that. The extra point says I got a lot of time left. I might as well see if I'll score more. So I think that thinking is logical from start to finish for me. I can go with that. Uh, depending on the game flow, I can I can get on board with that. Right. So I am famous for hating chasing the score. Like just kick the extra point. You don't know what's going to happen in the game or how the math is going to work. But yeah, I would kick the extra point for sure if I got flagged for the full start. All right. Fourth and two Eagles Pats game. Really wild game at the end on like a misty weather scenario. The Eagles go for it. They go for it, Allen, and they're up 25 to 20. Fourth and two, Eagles at the Pats 44-yard line, up 25-20. Two minutes left. They go for it. Your thoughts here? You know, this is part of their persona. I mean, they run that like, you know, whatever they call it, the six-back offense or whatever. And they two yards, though, it's... Is, is far for the you know the Jalen Hurts QB sneak thing, but if you're going to be aggressive and you want to like be a team that goes for it in this situation, I I don't have a problem with it at all. I love this because of the score. All right, it's twenty five twenty. If you get it, I think New England at this time had two timeouts, so you don't guarantee your win, but you increase your odds of winning significantly. Uh, if, yeah. To your point, you're a running team, but thirdly, the Pats have to score a touchdown, so you can punt here. There's no guarantee you punt them down inside the five. You could have a touchback, might be in the 10-yard line. So basically, what is the value of 35 yards to you? Is it worth giving up a chance to outright win the game for 35 yards, knowing they have to get in the end zone anyway? Because again, five points is a weird lead. You're too far away for a field goal. They have to score a touchdown. If you get stopped there, they still have to go 56 yards. I like the decision. I think there's a lot of value in this decision. Uh, I think it was the right situation for them to be in and to make it as it turns out the pats did drive about 36 yards and then they got stopped and the eagles there you go there you go all right very robust 
coaching corner there. That was awesome. Thanks, guys. Good, lots of good stuff going on. All right, let's thank some patrons again. Here is this is in order from when the first gift came in, the first dono, as uh, we like to call it on here, uh, despite my best inclinations. Okay, number one, Andrew Palumbo, Etienne, Jair Roseman, David Roberts. Scott Stoll, Jordan Sasser, Stephen Kirkhoff, Garrett, Logan Wild, Zach Stokes, Logan Weaver, Daniel Call, David Foster, Nicholas W. Karras, Charles Sellers, Gary from Atlanta, Wilson Whitaker, Kara Pridgen, Zach Gass, Nathan Young, what's up, man? Patrick Bowie, Thomas Ashley, Michael Reeves, Chad Hannaford, Steve Paul, John Porter, Pei Chen, the doctor himself, Kyle Ikatani. Why don't you go the rest here? Glenn McGraw. What up, Glenn? Long time no talk. Scott E. Francis. Scott was instrumental in the early stages of this podcast by spreading us into the UF alumni mag. Uh, Corey Sprodlin. Justin Seitz. The Justin of the Justin T. Of the Justin T and the opening voice on this podcast. Matthew Mitchell. Neil Callahan. Callanan. 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 I think Callanan is the way to go with that. I love just taking 10 stabs at these names. <laughs> Jason Sellers, Eric Mutz. That's a legend. Man, look at these guys lined up right there. Uh, Brian Petro, Alexandra Smith out there in California, LA. What's up? Uh, Joseph Picario, Anthony Lapore, or Lapore, uh, Chris Fontana, Justin Yo. Helms, Kathleen G. Smith. I like the middle names too. It's nice. Michael Lavin, Chris, uh, Zachary Wallers, Alessia. Williams. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that. There you go. The first, the the first, first wife of the pod. The, the first, first lady. lady of the pod. Yeah. Uh, David Steinfeld, Chris Yanes, Cody Davidson, Kay Hodges. It's Chris Hodges, the Swamp King himself. There he is. And Dimitri. Awesome. Man, great list. Illustrious stuff. That's back to the year 2017. That's where we are with these patrons. So we're moving up on 2018 as we go. All right. Live read coming at you. AG1 is still your daily foundational nutritional supplement. That supports whole body health. Of course, we first gave AG1 a try because they sponsored our pod. Thank you, AG1. We learned then very quickly it is not a green drink. In fact, it really mixes multiple supplements together, and it provides a one-stop shop for you to get all the nutritional boost that you are looking for. It tastes surprisingly nice. I must say that is, in fact, true. I like to drink it in the morning before breakfast. It's basically a great way to just start my day off. Uh, I essentially give myself all the veggies and other supplements my body needs to function optimally. If a comprehensive solution is what you're looking for from your supplement routine, or you don't have a supplement routine, it's a great way to start. AG1 is simply a scoop, basically. It's a small scoop that you put in and mix in with water or your favorite beverage. And right now, you can try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and a five-free AG1 travel pack with your first purchase. Simply go to drinkag1.com gnfp drinkag1.com slash GNFP. Check it out. It's in the show notes. Okay, James, are you ready? I'm so ready. Little Peyton's ready and I'm ready. Let's do it. Do it. Okay. It's Tennessee week. The volunteers are here. Number 11, Tennessee, 2-0 versus UF, who's 1-1. Tennessee is currently favored by seven as we recorded this podcast. As we said, last week they won over Austin P 30-13. This game was six. Six to six for a while. It was 13 to six at halftime. Eventually they overpowered them. Not a pretty look for Tennessee. I'm sure that's leaving them feeling a little shaky. Maybe not against Florida. Maybe they feel okay. We'll see. Although they don't win here in the swamp very often. And 
but definitely calls into question some of their bigger ambitions. We'll see how that plays out this week and moving forward. But first, let, let's start with a real treat here. Big homies culture corner. You want to do the mascot? Yeah, no, you, why don't you, you, know, okay. you do the mascot this time? I've been getting to the mascot, which yeah. is a blast. Okay. I'll give you the best part. The volunteers, as they are known, they derive their name from the fact that the state of Tennessee had become known as the volunteer state when a large number of volunteers fought in the war of 1812. That's a long time ago. Now you'd think, okay, a volunteer, but you know, we also got Smokey. I love Smokey. Blue tick coonhound, popular breed of dog. There are two versions of the mascot. Of course, we got a live dog, Smokey the 11th. That's right. And a costume mascot. The first Smokey, Lil Smokey, was Lil an Smokey, actual, like yeah. Lil Peyton. There's a reason why he's Lil Peyton. That's not <laughs> just arbitrary. It was an actual dog and the chosen winner of a contest at halftime in the Tennessee Mississippi State game in 1953. It's a long time ago. Lil Smokey was chosen from a field of other dogs. And. Because he howled on cue when the crowd cheered. I mean, that's 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 exactly what Little Smokey should do. It's fantastic. <laughs> this is a great one. I remember this one. Uh, Smokey the, I believe this is the seventh. That's right. Who reigned from <laughs> ni- 1992-94. Was forced into an early retirement when he nipped at band members in consecutive games. That was a spicy Smokey there. He thought that they were they were a raccoon or a bear. That's what he hunts. He thought, hey, these, that's what these guys are. All right. Tell us about... The colors. All right. Charles Moore was a member of the very first uh, Tennessee football squad. He selected the colors in 1891. So if you're wondering where that horrific color first came from, (laughs) it came from this guy, Charles Moore. He picked these colors due to the profuse amount of American daisies growing on the hill, the central area of the school. Daisies generally are really nice to look at. I'm I'm not sure they got the color right. While they have been the official color since 1891, the football team did not sport the colors until a matchup with the powerhouse Emory and Henry in 1922. Florida fans recognize that name if you're old enough that Spurrier had a famous formation that he called Emory and Henry. Because Spurrier, of course, was from Tennessee. There you go. Okay. Um, I got to give you credit here uh, and your, your insight into uniform combos. I used to love to hate on the Tennessee Orange. It was the worst shade of orange possible. It looked like something that you might find in the toilet, you know, after you threw up. Just an a, abysmal shade of orange, and you're like, you know, Nike's going to clean this up a little. They're going to make it more palatable. It is more palatable. It's still not a great orange. It's still not a Gator orange or an Auburn orange, which is a much better look. But I, it makes me sad that it's not as bad as it used to be because I just used to love to troll them. On their color choices, so it makes me sad too because too I actually bad. it's like the Buccaneers to me, like the Bucks colors. They're a little better looking, but the old school Bucks colors mm-hmm. are so Creamsicle. ugly. They're awesome, the creamsicles. It's a better orange than Tennessee's orange. But as I look at Little Peyton, who has the classic Tennessee orange on it, it's just not right to me. They changed their color. That's whatever. It's ridiculous. Just own it. Ugly can be awesome. Yeah, you've been ugly for a long time. Just own keep it. being ugly. Just own it. If you're good and ugly, it's even better. But they didn't, and that's sad. All okay, right. tell us about Rocky. Rocky Top. Which, to be true, to be fair, guys, I had to say this right now. I went RVing a couple of years in Tennessee with friends, and we were like all over the place listening to every rendition of Rocky Top. And I hated that song for most of my life. I hate it when Tennessee plays it. But if you are actually in Tennessee hiking around listening to Rocky Top, I can assure you it's it's a vibe. All right, carry on. All right, given its complexity, this is some great writing here from, I guess, Big Homie or wherever he took this from. Might be surprised that learned that Rocky Top was written in ten minutes. Wow. A masterpiece. All right, Felice and Bud, Budlow Bryant, husband explain, and wife song, songwriters, wrote it. Anything else? 
Um, yeah, so good job by them. They wrote some other stuff. Oh, they were holed away in the Gatlinburg Inn. Yeah. For all of you been in Gatlinburg, it's a, it's a riotous place of tourist, you know, madness. So I, I will say Rocky Top is a fine song, theoretically. It's a, it's a but it, it is, but it gets played into the ground. And therefore sim- I hate it. Similar to the FSU war oh, chant. Oh, nothing is worse than the war chant, but Rocky Top is a very close second. They just were like, play it on every occasion, and it starts to eat at your soul. And if they're winning, it kills your soul. It's, it's terrible. It rips your soul out, which is why it's a good song, because you hate hearing it if they're winning. I hate that crap. All right, you want to do fan rep? Right. I mean, yes, I want to do fan rep. <laughs> All of you know how much I love Tennessee's fans. They love football, and I love football. And this that's... Can't... These stats that he put on here are This is amazing. This is, I think, his best work ever. But I love football. Tennessee fans love football. I have great stories about being in Tennessee with that colliding, and I'm all here for it. Currently, Tennessee ranks 40th in the country in dental care. (laughs) And I could not love this more. If any of you have ever seen James Bates joking about Tennessee in the old school skits, if you haven't Googled right now, James Bates, Tennessee fan, and you'll know Luther. uh, Luther Vandross, I think, was (laughs) Luther something was his name. Not Vandross, obviously, but... Uh, either way, according to a 2014 CNBC article, Tennessee is the worst state to live in, which I think Tennessee actually yeah, I pretty, don't know about pretty that, great but... place to visit. But, you know, hey, CNBC 2014 article we found somewhere. Great. And according to Big Homie, Tennessee ranks fourth in the country for the least attractive people. <laughs> I would like to know who's one. What's one, two and three, Big Homie? Inform us next time. What's one, two, <laughs> what's three? 32? All right. 32. In, all serious, in all serious, no, he does end on the right note here. In all yeah. serious, no, he took his five year old son to Dan Mullen's first. Uh, UF versus UT game in Neyland at 2018. UF won. And the fans could not have been more welcoming then. They let him know that they would have given him a healthy dose of harassment if his son was not there. But then they also did the same thing, welcome to Knoxville. I feel like that's exactly true. Simultaneously, last year we talked about this. My friends and I got flicked off by the entire student section because a very creative and enterprising usher walked us right through the heart of that thing, which was wildly fun. My cousin Jordan still thinks it was the greatest sporting experience of his life. Um, it was rabid. It was insane. It was awesome. But generally speaking, the people are actually very nice and they love their football and they're like confrontational, but not in a way that generally gets crazy. It's the perfect blend of like sports circus. And, and they have some great stuff like the Vol Navy and there's a hundred thousand people. It's in that awesome. Stadium. If you've never gone, get there. It's awesome. And they're going to come down here and they're one of my favorite fan bases to troll. I love it. I wish we were better so we could really troll them like we used to. But regardless, and if, and if you're they're looking at nervous. history, they're nervous right they now. They are. And they're, they're Lil, always nervous about Florida. Lil Payton's record, you know, stands on itself. If you think years. about the losses they've had, the swamp, the real Greer play. I mean, there's some Treon Harris stuff in there. They they have lost games they had no business losing down here in the swamp. I'm sure that's in their collective fan base's mind, even if the players aren't aware of it. Okay. Let's talk about the team itself. Josh Heupel is in his third year. We've talked about him a lot on the podcast. Um his offense been quite prolific at times. Uh, the talent edge is a, about a push, so relatively equal there. Um, UF is a, you know, a few more four stars in the mix. The returning starters advantage Tennessee seven on offense, five on defense. Although we'll give some caveats to that in a second. So they're 69th in returning production. So despite the fact that they have a decent number of stars returning, they lost. A lot. Hendon Hooker, gone. Their top two receivers, gone. Just a lot of the guys you think about that would define that team last year are no longer on it. And, you know, Florida, obviously, just very low returning production. Um, 
And so, yes, that Tennessee on paper looks like it has more, but really probably bounces out as only a slight advantage there. Okay, the coaching staff, new OC here, Josh Housel. I think I'm saying that right. His first year, Tim Banks, his third year as, D, as DC. So, again, new players at key positions here. All the running backs return. So, Jalen Wright and Jabari Small, both effective last year. Joe Milton, I believe these are his stats thus far this year. 42 of 63 for 429, 4 TDs and 3 TDs rushing. And then you some names you might recognize at wide receiver. Brew McCoy. These are his 22 stats. 52 for 667, 4 TDs. Ramel Keaton. 31 for 562 and 5 TDs. So they have some returning guys, right? Even though they lost their their two high-profile receivers and Hinden Hooker. And just another thing to note, they were 3 of 12 on third down last week, which isn't spectacular. Okay. Joe Milton, a ton, a ton of preseason hype. If you've watched any highlights of him, we thought Anthony Richardson, Armstrong, this guy can throw it through the roof. I mean, just can send it. Big guy, fairly athletic, has been around a little bit, won and lost jobs. Let's talk about him, and let's talk about what their offense is doing this year and how it's looking. Well, if you want to listen to like a really in-depth breakdown on Tennessee, you can check out last year's version, Although it's only slightly different from this year's version because of some of the personnel they had, it's basically the same. So I'm not going to go into the whys of Tennessee like I have before. There's also film review out there on YouTube if you want to see the whys of Tennessee. I love this offense. If it's your first time listening to this podcast, I love this offense. I will explain why that is briefly, and I will tell you about the scouting report on this year's team. So Heupel's offense generally runs the ball slightly more than they pass it. It can be right around 50-50 by the end of the year. But against overmatched opponents, they will run it a lot. So right now, they're a little more run than pass-oriented. Last year, their passing offense was at an incredible 11 yards per play. This year, it's down to 6.4 yards per play. So the passing offense way down. We'll talk about why that is. No interceptions thrown yet. They do not throw a lot of picks. That's a feature of Heupel's offense. This year, Milton is 4 for 13 versus man with a 30 percent completion rate Allen he's one for six versus cover zero the rushing offense however has been the bell cow of this team top 15 in most categories Jalen Wright uh, Jabari Small uh, are their two leading rushers there's also three by committee they all return from last year and Jalen Wright is breaking an absurd amount of tackles he's their most elusive guy but they play all of them pretty equally so running back by committee all returners very solid they've been relying on the run in large part because Joe Milton has been very erratic obviously all of you on this pod have been listening for any amount of time know that Tennessee spreads the field very wide they have what's called very wide splits and I love this because it clears up the read for the quarterback it also puts your athletes in space and Hypel chooses to employ vertical routes frequently stretching the defense both east and west and north and south it's a dangerous offense to cover Almost every single play will feature either a zone read or an RPO or some sort of ball fake to get the linebackers unable to just commit to run or pass. They will run the quarterback quite a bit. They will run actual RPOs where they do, in fact, have that two-way option available. You can, much like last year, Allen, get pressure on their offensive line. That is still a weakness of this team. We saw Georgia do it frequently in the game last year. It can be done. 
Their tight ends and running backs are rarely targeted for passes, especially as a primary receiver. However, the running backs are used as late developing options if teams want to sink into zone and fall back to cover their vertical routes. This year's edition will especially abuse the pop screenplay to the short side or wide side of the field using their lead receiver as a blocker if you play off coverage. This is the one play that has been Joe Milton's saving grace. We're going to talk about in a second. He's been struggling significantly on film. Otherwise, the wide receivers thus far, Allen, for Tennessee, have been wide open on film, but they have been struggling to convert. The ball location from Milton has not been good. He's either outright missed them or made these balls difficult to catch, and they have generally not come down with them. If I could sum up all of Tennessee's offense in one sentence this year, it would be that Tennessee has been their own worst enemy their first two games through the year with Virginia and Austin P. Their own worst enemy, self-inflicted wounds. I think they cannot be riding high on confidence. When you roll the tape, there are times where Joe Milton is so erratic that Hypo basically starts running against the numbers, which he never did last year. Teams are loading the box. He's just running. He's only running screen plays and not vertical passes because he cannot get his quarterback to complete passes. This is a different version of Tennessee than last year, despite the fact that the play design is just as awesome. But the inconsistency at the quarterback position has been really, really hampering them. What this means is Joe Milton himself, Allen, is going to be the X factor in this game. If we get the Joe Milton that showed up at Austin P and that showed up against Virginia for the first you know, two and a half quarters, this is going to be, I think, a favorable matchup for Florida's defense. If Joe Milton plays well, this is going to be a tough day for any defense. That's kind of where I think Tennessee is right now. Uh, they potentially are going to write their own story as to whether they win or lose based upon their quarterback play. Right. So let me give you a little bit of a comparison here. I'm not usually a stat forward person here, but um, this is from something David Wonderlick put on Twitter. But uh, so Graham Mertz threw for more yards per attempt against Utah, 7.6, than Joe Milton did in his performance against Virginia, 6.7, Austin P, 6.9. So if you think about that Tennessee offense from last year, they are just blitzing you down the field, strafing you on these deep passes, these deep cuts, and that's not what they're doing successfully thus, thus far. And it's going to be fascinating. I mean, maybe they wake up and they're able to do it. Um, Joe Milton gets it figured it out. But if they can't, they're they're limited. They're not the same team with Hendon Hooker just strafing you uh, on every play. No, and it's surprising. I think if you actually took a Graham Mertz and put him on Tennessee, they'd be super dangerous. And we said this last year. The bar to be a good quarterback at Tennessee is much lower, in my opinion, than lots of other schools. Uh, and I think that's why Heupel is probably pretty frustrated right now with how Tennessee looks. Now, what's the game plan for Florida? We've talked a lot about this in the past. Highlight version coming here. Follow the Georgia and Pitt plan. Uh, Pitt and Pat Narduzzi had faced Heupel four years in a row, going back to his time at UCF. Uh, Narduzzi generally is a cover four guy. In fact, there had been some speculation. I've heard some some comments in the past about how you know Pat Narduzzi does not play man. Well, he does, in fact, play a ton of man against um, Tennessee. And if you want to find that out for yourself, just Google his own quotes about his experience playing Tennessee, where he himself will say, quote, if you're not playing man against Tennessee, you're putting yourself at a significant disadvantage. Uh, so you do have to play a lot of man. In fact, Georgia and Pitt again played 72% of their plays in man. By contrast, a game plan we smashed last year is not liking. Bama played only 25% in man. You cannot run heavy zone versus last year's version of Tennessee 
Now, this year's version of Tennessee, Allen, does allow you to play a suboptimal strategy because they are their own worst enemy. Now, if your defensive line is as stacked as Georgia's was, Georgia was able to run some five-man boxes, very undersized, because their D-line was so dominant, they didn't have to have a six-guy in the box. I don't think Florida can get away with that. So Florida's not going to be able to play things like Georgia played, which is some cover two-man. They played a lot of match zone when they weren't playing man. Florida's going to be a little bit more aggressive, I think, at stopping the run because our D-line is not Georgia's D-line. However, I do think based on film, Allen, we should expect to do very well with our tight, with our tight T-I-T-E. We keep talking about our tight formation. In fact, other schools have already used this versus Tennessee, and they are bottling up the inside runs. That's just five guys in the box. Uh, and again, Ban- uh, Georgia would play four sometimes, in fact. But it's five guys in the box. I think we can be successful in that regard. So, so yeah, last year you were begging, begging Patrick Tony to try what Pitt tried just to see if it would work. Begging. Right. And then it nobody else tries until Georgia. And obviously, you know, Georgia's in their own category, but they completely shut Tennessee down. And it was, and if you, <laughs> I was really excited to see if Georgia would try it. And they did, and it really worked. Bama did not try it, and they got killed. And so, you know, what you what we've talked about is, you've especially with Milton, you've got to make him make tough throws. He's not the most accurate guy, and if you make his, if it's tough for him, he's got to have good ball placement. I think you can have some success against him. If you're going to leave him wide open stuff, he's going to hit enough of those to probably beat you. If he has his head on straight at all. So I'm fascinated. I'm so interested to see if Austin Armstrong will do what seems like the optimal strategy considering what Tennessee has done in the past. Again, this is a whole different game. They could do different things. But if history is an indicator, it would be really, really interesting to see how he responds. It's going to be fascinating. And in fact, McNeese ran two. And this is funny. I haven't watched enough McNeese to know if they run this. But they ran two plays that it almost seems like Austin Armstrong was like, hey, if you would throw in two plays like Tennessee runs, please do that. They ran two, and I break them down in our film review of Tennessee's wide splits, and you can see a preview of the two ways Florida could potentially cover it. And then, of course, the other ones will be, I think, even even more cleared out, like some cover zero looks on third downs and whatnot. But actually, to stop Tennessee, they're known for their prolific passing offense. It starts with stopping their rushing offense. And the reason is pretty simple. If you're Georgia and you can run a four-man box, so Georgia was frequently running three down linemen and one linebacker at times, and they were stopping Tennessee with five and even six blockers at times, then it's going to be very hard to move the ball. Again, very few schools outside of Georgia can even think of doing that. But Georgia also, most meta, would run five-man boxes, which Florida's already done very well in that tight formation. And when they did that, like we talked about, they stopped the run. They proved to Tennessee they could not run the ball for more than a couple of yards. If you can get Tennessee in a third and seven, third and eight, third and nine, it becomes much easier to cover them because their offense, although the wide splits are really nice and it's vertical, they're not high percentage throws if you're able to clamp down on those interior throws, which is what Georgia did better than anybody. Georgia would frequently sit a safety or two. They'd sit in a two high look. They'd come down on the slants and they'd play man on the outside on the edge. They would do things to take away the most probable throws for Tennessee. So it means you just can't line up in basic man and let Tennessee run crossers and rubs on you. You have to mix up how you switch who plays what, who you double when you come down interiorly, where you move your safety. So they can't just get a read on what you're doing because Hypel is brilliant at maximally attacking the style of coverage you are playing, man or zone. But make no mistake about it. Success starts stopping the run. It's then followed by playing the majority in man defense. 
even versus this Milton-led offense, which struggles to pass versus zone. If you're playing man, those windows become much smaller. Milton's at 30% right now hitting that, right? And all in all, as long as you're near your man, the odds of them scoring like a broken play touchdown are still fine because you can still keep one safety up high. So this is going to be fascinating to me, Alan. I have high hopes that what we're going to see Coach Ham do is similar to a Georgia game plan. Similar to what we actually saw at McNeese on a couple of snaps, where we're going to be able to use our split safety technique to bring those guys either in the box and help us run defenders and invert kind of a cover zero and move them all around to create confusing pre-snap looks while ultimately playing a lot of man. If we do not play a lot of man in this game, if we're not at at least 50% man, and again, you can make an argument based on what I've seen on film that maybe you don't have to go as high as 72 or 80% man. versus. But if we're not at least at 50%, we are playing suboptimally. And if Tennessee puts you in a, and you allow yourself to be in a suboptimal condition versus them, then you are putting the game in the state that we talked about, in their hands. And maybe Joe Milton doesn't get it done and you win the game, but you are no longer in control of your own destiny. I want this defense to control their own destiny by playing optimally in this game and living with the results. Don't just rely on Joe Milton missing wide open throws so that you can get yourself a win. Because if he doesn't, Tennessee's going to put up 21 points in a hurry. We saw that, obviously, last year. Yeah. So this Tennessee offense, again, feels like if they wake up, they're really dangerous. If they remain sleepy, they're much easier to contain. But as you said, regardless, it would be really interesting to see how Florida plays them, assuming they do the stuff that they typically do, which I have no reason to think they wouldn't. Other than Joe Milton imploding. Yeah, they're going to. And they're going to put pressure on you. North, South, East, West. But Florida's... Look, Florida's roster is really well suited to this. Mm -hmm. You start looking at who Florida can roll out there. If we want to roll out a package we never rolled out with Tony, which we can. Let's say it's third and eight and they've got four receivers out there. And we want to play man. Put your man package out there. You can roll out Devin Moore, Jakeem Jackson. You got Jaden Hill. You got Jason Marshall. You got Jalen Kimber. All five of those dudes can cover. I mean, you got a lot of options here. And Tennessee's receiving core is not as good and as dangerous as it was last year. Although they're getting open, they're largely getting open by their scheme. Last year, if they got one-on-ones on the outside, they were just winning. They're not winning those battles with the same high frequency here. So there's less to be concerned about. But again, this design puts a lot of pressure on you. You can't blow calls. You can't get stuff wrong. And that is why, Alan, to conclude our defensive segment for me, I'm so thrilled that entering into this game, we are so tactically and positionally sound. I have high hopes that we're going to make some mistakes, but that we're not going to make so many of them that we gift Tennessee so many free yards like we did last year. If you just don't give them plays by alignment, so to speak, where we're just wrongly aligned and they get free plays, I think this Tennessee offense will be their own worst enemy. All right, can't wait to see it. Okay, Tennessee's defensive personnel... Different story here. They return eight starters, 69% of the production. They're, you know, very veteran group. Interior D-line is their strength, and they have their whole secondary back. A couple names to note. Aaron Beasley in 22 had 76 tackles and three sacks. James Peer, junior defensive lineman, eight pressures. You know, largely the same group you saw last year, minus a few guys you know, I think this was what was holding Tennessee back last year. Was there, you know, could their defense make enough stops against the best teams, right? Uh, they've been better this year. Why don't you talk about them a little bit? 
It's a solid unit. So ever since we've profiled Tennessee's defense from the start as Tim Banks' DC, they are solid, meaning they do the right things. They have been limited athletically. Uh, talent has been a problem for them versus premier opponents, but they always play relatively solid. Now, Florida shredded them last year. The best game plan in Billy's offensive coordinating history was versus Tennessee. It wasn't perfect, but it was by far the best plan we have seen him come up with. Hopefully that same thing happens here. We torched Tennessee. It was AR's best game as a Gator. A different team, obviously, now for Florida. Mainly the same defense for Tennessee, but their front seven is solid. They keep everything in front, and they force you to drive the ball. Why do they do this? Because they really trust their offense, and they're basically saying their offense is their best defense by pressuring you into scoring. We're going to make you earn that rather than just give you easy touchdowns, right? If you go 8, 9, 10 plays and you feel the pressure of having to score, you'll mess up. So the bad news for Florida right now is Tennessee's strength on their defense is, in fact, their rushing defense. Now, although they have not played anyone of note yet, they have been competent. They do play solid. They do look sound on film. They're also a very good third down defense, which they were last year as well. Linebackers are solid in the right places. They tackle well. This year, what's interesting, (laughs) they are playing man at a much lower rate than last year, just 25%, and they're rarely pressuring with an 18% blitz rate. These are much lower numbers than last year, mid-30s. Uh, for playing man, mid-20s for blitzing. I don't think that that's going to carry over into this game. I think that's going to be higher. I think Tennessee is going to be higher, especially if they return their entire secondary. I think that's largely opponent-based rates that you see there. So basically, Tennessee plays multiple. They play sound. They're not going to just give Florida free yards. But much like we saw last year, Florida was competent passing the ball against them. That's largely what led to Florida scoring, especially late. I think running the football, even this year, same front seven. We weren't lighting them up running it last year. It's hard to believe we're going to light them up running the football this year. They're better. We're theoretically worse. I think that's where the game plan is going to be hanging. Right. And that, again, you would like to be going for a team that has to commit extra more and more guys into the box to stop you from running. It's going to be a real challenge, I think, for Florida. Can they score enough points and move the ball? I would say efficiently, not just effectively. Like, right? If we're gonna if we're gonna depend on like ten play drives, I don't know that that's gonna do the job for us. We're gonna have to have a few more explosive plays. Can we scheme those up? Uh, are we willing to do that and try that? Also, I don't know. This is like this Tennessee game ten, has now become like an outlier for us in terms of what we're trying to do. Maybe Billy just likes what Tim Banks is giving him. I I don't know, but. I don't have a ton of confidence we're going to do the things that we did in that game or that we have the kind of personnel to do, you know, you know, AR being the main ingredient there to do what might, we might have to be able to do to beat them. Yeah. So strategically, I'll give you two options. One is what would be optimal if we were just starting from a blank canvas and, and we know what they know. Well, obviously you'd want to have better passing play designs, taking advantage of the fact that they're going to try to stop your run. We talked about this with Utah, we obviously did not answer the bell, right? Utah gave us so many favorable passing looks. Make no, no make no mistake about it. Tennessee saw that as well. They're aware that, hey, Florida did not challenge Utah, despite Utah begging Florida to challenge them. We're going to take that lesson and apply the same thing here and see if Florida can beat us with the pass. Every Tennessee coach is going to say, the only way we're going to lose this game is if Florida beats us with the pass. If, however, Florida runs the ball well, then Florida's offense becomes, as we saw last year, viable, right? So I'm going to start with the fact that you're going to expect that's probably not going to be the case. 
Therefore, passing design, that's a premium, all right? If I'm Billy, we're going to work with Billy's world. Billy's world is my offense is built on running the football. I have to find ways to run the football. Billy's an excellent run game designer. We've talked a lot about how frustrated we are with his passing game, especially me. But I keep trying to give him credit where credit is due. He's excellent at designing run game stuff. He's fantastic at designing run plays. He's really good at them. He's going to have to come up with a really creative running game plan so we do not have a repeat of Utah. If he wants to run his stuff and he wants to run the ball like he wants to run the football and he wants to stay balanced, he's going to have to dream up some really creative stuff to get us running the football because it's not going to work to just line up like we did versus Utah and run the football. It's not going to happen. So therefore, we'll have to run the football, stick with his meta, and then find ways to play action pass enough to squeak out you know, 21, 24 points and win Billy's, Billy's way. That's what I think he's going to be looking to do. Tactically, he should be trying to attack Really, Slaughter is their weakest corner. And like we talked about last year, Haddon is an absolute baller at corner. He was great last year. He's even better this year. Nobody is catching passes on this guy. Ideally, you're trying not, if you get man-to-man, you're trying not to go at him. So if I'm Mertz pre-snap, I'm leaving him alone. I'm looking at my other matchups, and I'm targeting Slaughter, and I'm targeting some of their other CBs that have lower uh, QB attack ratings. So all in all, I think you and I both know that this is not going to be a game where Billy comes out and changes his stripes and we're all of a sudden, you know, running empty and running four wide and pressuring Tennessee's defense in ways that would challenge them. It then hinges on whether or not Florida can find a way to run the ball enough to open up the rest of their offense enough, I think, to score in that low to mid 20s where they can win the game close. I think that's probably the game plan Billy's looking at. Man, uh, that is not the most like encouraging analysis that we've given. Uh, but that seems to be what history will indicate that we will try and do. Okay. A few categories here. Special teams, advantage Tennessee, penalty, significant edge Tennessee, and turnover margin and time possession are basically a push. Injuries. Again, we, we're doing this without the benefit of the depth chart they like to release late on Monday night. But in the press conference, um, I think it's apparent that Kingsley is going to play this week. It's which, a big, make no mistake about it. It's a big boost. It's a big boost. And it's not I, like Kingsley's all SEC, but relative to what we have at that position, that's a big boost. And Slaughter played much better in game two. But again, I don't know how much you can take away from that, but it's nice to have him back there. Um, all right, let's do this. I'm ready to predict it. Why don't you give your keys to the game first? All right, keys to the game. Let's start with the offense. And again, I'm going to I'm going to go with what we expect the game plan to look like, right? Not not the game plan that you and I and others might wish up. So, in order for Florida to be successful given the Napier offensive game plan, we are going to have to rush the football. We have to rush the football to win this football game at 175 yards or more. And that's not lighting the world on fire, but we we have got to get there. I don't see a way that Florida wins this game with fewer than 175 rushing yards. So for me, that's my main key. On defense, this is the one I'm excited about, right? As you can tell, offense, I'm not excited. Defense, I'm thrilled. I can't wait to see what we put out there. Uh, Again, the rushing stat is most instructive for stopping Tennessee. So I'm going to give you two because I think it has to go hand in hand. I'm going to say that we allow them to rush for less than 125 yards. So they rush for less than 125 yards on D. And I'm going to just go with an actual stat here. I'm going to go that we play man 50% of the time or more. I think that will largely help us dictate the outcome. I just think even with Tennessee's issues, I don't want to roll the dice with zone. I want to see Coach Ham do what I think is optimal, what game plans indicate. 
I'd love to see that number be right there at 50% or more. And I think if that happens, Florida has a really good chance to win this football game in general. I think that gets to the field on third down. It keeps Tennessee not scoring as often. Gives us a shot to win. Okay, mine. Offensively, it's similar. I Instead of going for uh, just total yards here, I think we're going to need a certain number of big chunk rushing plays. I think trying to average you know, five yards of carry without busting a few. It's going to be just almost impossible. So let's say five plays of 15 yards or more, and that'll be a little bit, uh, maybe I'll have to do a few calculations after the game to come up with that. And defensively, man, there's a lot of ways that you could affect Tennessee or get hurt by Tennessee. And, if I imagine this game going really poorly for Florida is that Joe Milton is playing well. And again, we've talked about them stopping the ball. I'm, I'm going to take that into account as well, but thinking about, um, is he hitting, is he completing, um, big plays on Florida, right? Are they, are we giving up, you know, 20 yards or more? So they have, I'm going to say the same stat. I'm going to say five plays of 20 yards or more. Are they like strafing us down the field? And if they are, I think that's just indicative indicative of the fact that he is playing well and he's hitting his throws and they're beating us down the field and this Tennessee offense is opening up and we're gonna have a hard time containing them. So it's probably a it's probably a you know a lag effect or you know of of what is happening on the field. But um, yeah, I just have nightmares of them hitting these big 20, 40, 50 yard plays on us and you know, just basically the game being over by halftime. Man, that would be really rough. All right, it's prediction time, Alan. What do you got score-wise? I do think this game is going to slog down a little bit, and so you might just have a little bit of the luck factor in there. Does there are there some turnovers or some fumbles or some special teams plays? Those are really hard to predict. But uh, I don't like us on the offensive side of the ball. The Utah game is lingering for me. Uh, I think Tennessee's personnel is even probably more equipped to do what they would want to do. And I'm going to predict us losing 24-20. Getting inside the seven, but taking an L there. All right. So I have so many, like, I just, I want to predict a Florida win so bad. And that's largely because of what I see on film from Tennessee's offense, which can totally be had. And what I believe about Florida's defense uh, which hasn't proven it in a game like this yet. But looking at the two pieces of film, you can easily marry them up. Tennessee on offense, Allen, relies so heavily with Milton throwing a lot of those sideline screen plays or pop passes. Basically, it's two receiver sets, the lead receiver blocks, back guy screens. That's almost what they've had to go to. Uh, and, and teams have not been willing to do what Georgia or Pitt is doing, what Florida I think is going to do, which is play close line of scrimmage, at least with a corner. And you can play off with your with your with your slot or you can also reverse that but you got to have somebody close to the line to aggressively pursue those passes especially if Milton starts struggling I think coach Ham has shown me enough he's going to do that he's going to put pressure on the throws that Milton likes to throw and make him earn it but to your point I mean it's right now it, it's to bet against the data to believe that Florida's passing offense can do something it hasn't really done and win a game like this it's just betting against what we know to be true and I don't as I want to bet against that, but I'm not going to bet against that because of logic. I also think this game could be surprisingly low scoring, which means Florida can definitely steal this game. A few turnovers here and there, a weird play, a red zone stop, something kind of funky. 
Uh, and I, I feel like your score is similar here. I'm going to go with a lower scoring game. I'm going to go Tennessee 20 and Florida 17. Uh, kind of like the Utah score. We're both in the same range there. Funky, weird, probably more stops than normal. Either team can probably win this game. But again, I think to bet on Florida's offense right now is to bet against the grain. It's to bet with hope. And we're all hoping. I'm hoping, right? I'm hoping this, this score is solid. I think if Florida's offense is average in this game, which is what we're shooting for, I think we can win this game. And I think there's ways you can win by a lot because I think Joe Milton is hanging by a thread confidence-wise right now on the road. That could really go against him. Certainly. And I, I do think – I'm not writing Florida off in this game by any means. Uh, it's weird to pin my hopes on the defense, right? The previous years, you know, especially in the Dan Mullen years, it's like if you can get an average defensive performance, we should win this game going away. This feels like we're going to need a – an excellent effort from them combined with Joe Milton imploding. Now, again, if Joe Milton implodes with those three picks and can't get the ball out of his hand, like Florida could win just being super conservative. I, I don't want to put too much pressure in my prediction on this defense being um, top-notch because they just haven't really shown that yet against a premier opponent uh, in terms of offensively. So, Again, Tennessee might not be that. That might be a fraud this year offensively. They just can't get it done. Um, but I, I'll need to see it. And so the Swamp is a tough place to play. There's a lot of intangibles going Florida's way. This is a really important game potentially for Billy. Like if the schedule holds firm and, you know, the the, the teams are as tough as they appear, accumulating wins could be really important to keep momentum going. You know, our, our friend JT Raymond has talked about this like, oh, this is like everything. If we lose this game, it's like the whole program collapses. If we win it, you know, everything will be fine. I, that's an insane amount of weight to put on this game. But I do think in the small sample size of college football, winning this game provides you a lot more cushion for other weird things to happen. And getting a win over your rival, right? You know, people count those stats. What are you against your rivals? What are you against, you know, top 10 opponents? The, even if Tennessee's a fraud, like beating them would be huge for this program. And I, I don't know. I, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be pulling like crazy that we're going to pull this out. I just at, on Monday afternoon, it's hard to predict that the offense is going to do enough. Yeah, it is hard. I think uh, let, let's spend a second talking about what you just said. Billy's obviously over against his rivals right now. Uh, he's, he's faced really difficult schedule, of course, to start off his tenure here. This game does become sort of a, a watershed in a small way. But what I want to say is we said in the offseason that it's about style this season. And I want to center my comments around this style. I think the reason that I'm so hopeful for the defense is I'm seeing improved style on the field. And what that means to me, Alan, is actually we could lose this game 20-17, to 17, just like I said. The defense could be extremely competent and play really well. The offense could be broken. Passing wise, again, I think Billy's rushing offense design is really good. And I could feel oddly still good about the long run if if you told me we were going to make changes offensively in the offseason. I'm going to feel really bad. I mean, really bad if the defense gets torched with a bad game plan. If it's just personnel, whatever, right? But if something happens that I really don't foresee based upon the film and we get hammered like we did last year on defense, the offense also looks weak, I will be in a bad place. It doesn't mean that stuff's over. Not at all. It's not the way it works, right? In my three-year test, you get three years. 
But that would signify we have a lot of uphill trudging to do. If the defense does its job, it means, hey, look, you got the right guy in place. Right? Coach Ham's not going to be head coach next year. He's going to be here for a couple of years. And now you get the offense right. You get the recruits right. Now, all of a sudden, I can see a roadmap. You can see it, right? You can envision it where you start winning. And it's not that far away. So this game, I think, to me signifies, is Coach Ham who I think he is? Can he get a result against a dynamic offensive scheme that's struggling with their signal caller at home with a fan base that's hungry for a win and make them feel good? And can Billy's offense, which I think is obviously broken passing-wise, do enough to get a win for the field good? But if they don't, unlike JT Raymond, can we do enough in the offseason to address what's going wrong to fix the future? Because there's still a lot of potential silver linings that would exist. So this game is, I think, interesting for a lot of reasons. I definitely don't think it's a Billy loses, he'd get fired, and it's over for him at all. I think there's a lot of things he's doing well. But make no mistake about it. This Tennessee team is not the team people thought they would have been preseason, including myself. I thought Milton would be a step down from Hooker, but not as much of a step down as he is right now. Florida could be facing Tennessee at the right time. We faced Utah at the right time, did not get a win. That was ugly. If we have a repeat of Utah on offense, Allen, I don't know how any Florida fan can put a positive spin on that. And so let's hope that's not the case. Let's hope we get a win. Let's hope little Peyton goes to 16-2 and because neither you nor I ever want to lose Tennessee again. I hate losing to Tennessee. The opportunity is here for us, but I think you're hearing in both our voices that it's just so hard to find positive offensive narratives for this team. And Tennessee's defense is, is accomplished enough to give us problems. It's really hard to take Tennessee's really great design, match it up, look at the stats, and say, we're going to win this game. So that's where we are. But I think there's a lot to watch for. I do not think that a loss signifies the end of an era or it's over or whatever. But certainly a win would put us in a much better mood. Okay, let's look at the slate for week two. Not a great one. Starts to ramp up considerably next week but not not a murderer's row here okay let's start with number 15 kansas state favored by five and a half at missouri all right k-state competent solid undervalued perhaps a five and a half uh as a road favorite i like that line i'm gonna take kansas state here yeah i'll join you there I, missouri hasn't shown me enough that i i like them against uh, what i consider a very solid team in kansas state all right minnesota at number 20, UNC, favored by 7.5. Are you liking this number for UNC? So UNC played in overtime. We didn't mention this, but oh, overtime yeah. win versus App State. And they are favored by 20 in that game. They got squeaked one out there. Minnesota defensive team. I don't think Minnesota's in a firepower to hang with UNC. I can see this game being in the mid-20s, etc. Um, I don't love 7.5 point lines here, though. So I'm very tempted to take Minnesota with this line here. And, uh, in fact, I will. I'm going to take Minnesota. Talk I'm going to take UNC. Right I agree. There. I mean, I think that App State stuff is, like, just in the water there. And it it's is. kind of a crazy game. I don't trust UNC's defense. But, I, I, again, I think there's some limitations on both of these teams. But 7.5 is not too much. I think they, they pulled that off late. All right, number 8, Washington, favored by 16 at Michigan State. Uh, without getting into it, Michigan State probably in a little bit of disarray. Their coach is currently suspended. Yeah, definitely in some disarray. Well, Read yeah. the news on that one if you haven't. Um, Mike D'Antonio coming back, temporarily coach. So there you go. 
16 points, a team that is in really a lot of distractions. Did you feel like this would be higher? Already not a very good football team. I mean, yeah, I think so. I like this is a big away line versus, you know, D1 school versus D1 school here, but I'm going to take Washington. Yeah, for sure. I I wouldn't actually put any ducats on that, but uh, yeah, Washington, I don't know how you could put any confidence in Michigan State right now. All right, BYU at Arkansas. Arkansas is favored by 10. No, BYU, BYU is, yet? BYU is not a great team this year. Uh, they tend to be more feisty. Arkansas, though, is, is playing people close. So I'm gonna take I'm gonna take BYU and, and go with the SEC as sus narrative. Mm, that's a strong point there, but I'll I'll take I'll take Arkansas here at home. All right, Pitt minus one at West Virginia. If there Back was a game, brawl. if there was a game I don't want to pick, it's this one. Neither <laughs> of these teams seems to be solid. I think Pitt's probably just a little bit better, so I'll take Pitt. I'll take Pitt as well. All right. The Colorado Buffaloes, a story of college football, are at their rival, Colorado State, and they're favored by 22 and a half. Do they pull that off? This line has got to be inflated by at least three points based upon the public betting on Colorado. Mm-hmm. Could be more. Again, Vegas, if you don't follow betting at all, their goal with every line is to get it to be 50 50 total dollars. Not 50% of bets, but total volume of money. And Colorado's money's flowing in on Colorado. People are just drinking the Kool-Aid at the highest level. So this it's tempting for me to say that 22 and a half is is too much for Colorado to cover. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that. I'm gonna take Colorado State here. I'm gonna take Colorado State as well. Love CSU uh, as a place and as a city. So I'm a little bit biased there. But I think they're a decent team this year and Maybe Colorado just comes down a little bit. Okay. Number seven, Penn State, favored by 14 at Illinois. This is why Penn State's so weird to me. Is like you're the number seven team in the country and you're favored by only 14 at an Illinois team. That's really not great. I don't know what to make Illinois of Illinois can ugly up the game, though. They will ugly up the game. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm taking a lot of dogs here, but I'm taking the points of Illinois. All right. I'm going to go Penn State here. I think Illinois just lost a little too much defensively to hang with them. All right. Let's see if you're a believer in this road favorite again. Okay. Number three, FSU, favored by 27.5 at BC. Does this that feel tough. like too much? Uh, anytime you get a, like above like 28, 30, you start getting into like, do they start pulling people? Do you start getting late scores? Florida State obviously looks, they look nice. They're playing good football, they're competent. Uh, BC's not in the same category as them. But that's a lot of points on the road. In a conference game. A lot of points on the road. I'm going to, again, take a dog, take the points here. Okay, I'll, I'll take BC with you there. Um, I don't know if that's just a homer pick, but we'll see. All right, number 14, LSU, ferried by 10 at Mississippi State. Are you a believer in what Mississippi State can do? I love what's happening at Mississippi State there in Starkville. The Cowbills will be out. Uh, I think LSU, much like last year, though, don't forget that they looked horrible against Florida State in week one. They started putting it together, and they started hammering people. I'm going to go with the Brian Kelly narrative here, and I'm going to take LSU with 10, although I don't love that line. It's a big line on the road. I don't know what to think about this game at all. Can LSU bounce back? Ugh, I don't love it at 10 at all. I'll join you at there, but I do not feel good about that at all. All right, this will give you a, a little bit of a hint about the slate on this game weekend. I think Florida-Tennessee is the best game, but I, I usually save the best game for last year in these picks, and 
Maybe the best I could come up with was South Carolina at number one, UGA favored by 27. Yeah, this is tricky. UGA's offense, I talked about this. Don't let how they played against those teams affect you. Uh, They've struggled to score. They've been pretty pedestrian. It has not looked pretty. South Carolina, as we know, some sensational results last year. On the road here, which in a way gives them sort of we have nothing to lose mentality. Another line at 27. That is tricky and dangerous. I'm going to take a dog here in South Carolina. I'm going to keep the theme going. Yeah, I'll join you on that. I don't like the South Carolina team, but I think the UGA offense have been scuffling just enough that beating a team by 27 probably feels like a little too much for me right now. All right, that's more dogs than I think I've ever taken on the podcast. So I'm either going to win a bunch or just lose them all. We'll see what happens. All right, Daytona Steve, what is he betting on this week? He likes Penn State at Illinois, favored by 14 for a $40 bet. He likes Tennessee. You traitor. You traitor. At minus 6.5 for $40. <laughs> of course, Alan and I do not have that bet. we got Florida inside that. He likes Colorado on the Dion train here at minus 22.5 for 20 bucks. And here we go. We're back. Uh, yeah, yeah, he a couldn't small, resist himself. A small dollar parlay. I mean, he obviously is warming himself back up again. He had a brutal year last year. He's just slowly at the dog track, <laughs> reading periodicals to figure out who to bet on. And he's come up with this parlay right here. He's got UNC minus seven and a half versus Minnesota. Florida State minus 27 and a half. Oregon State minus 24 and a half over San Diego State. The aforementioned Penn State at minus 14. Tennessee again at minus six and a half. If you bet $10 on that parlay and it hits, you win $240. I certainly hope it doesn't hit because that means Tennessee beats Florida by more than six and a half. And that's not what I want in my life. I don't think you want it in your life either. So down goes Daytona Steve on the parlay, I hope. Other items, Alan, quick discussion here. What did you think of Anthony Richardson's debut in the NFL? Oh, great topic. You know, I think he looks really nice for a rookie in his first start. So, you know... Fleet of foot, making some good reads, nice velocity on his throws, all the things we come to expect. They're in that game, you know, and I think the Jaguars are a much better team. And, you know, because the Jaguars aren't the best defensively, they were still able to hang on there. But he looked, he didn't look shaken or rattled. He looked confident. They They didn't stress him too much. Here's the thing. Actually, my biggest concern, and I don't think I ever heard this come up with any NFL guy, I'm worried about him health wise. Right. I he comes up a little bit limping after just a nonchalant run. And I'm like, when's the last time you saw him make a run and did it? He wasn't limping or looking at something. He got knocked out of the game. We don't know with what. That's actually my biggest concern by far with his future is can he stay healthy? And I don't I'd actually probably bet no. That long term he won't be healthy enough to reach his ceiling. Yeah, the, the the early returns would indicate that. Yeah, I thought obviously being a, a fan of AR's high ceiling from the beginning, um, a really great job. They did a great job coaching him up, right? He had the best uh, rookie debut, like QBR wise and game flow wise. Probably has another touchdown in him there, either running or passing at the end of that game when it was you know first and goal. In that case, his stat line would have been even better than it was. As stat people will do, they find these obscure stats. He's the first NFL rookie to ever debut with you know, 200 passing yards, 40 rushing yards, a rushing and passing touchdown. But all in all, he was very competent. And I think totally. that illustrated something we talked about last year, which was how we really felt like Florida needed to lean into his strengths and run an offense that was friendly for him. 
he still had the AR moments of, of inaccurate passes where he missed throws he could have had. But to be in the NFL against a team that many fancy as a top two team in the AFC and to go toe-to-toe with them, he got stopped on two fourth and ones driving. Super competent game plan. I think Colts fans everywhere are probably hyped and excited. <laughs> There's a lot more film to get put out on him. Teams will start to adjust to what he does, but I think he has to be super and Talk about fit. This is what people are excited debut. about. I mean, there's some really creative stuff. If you look at one of their touchdowns where he QB sneaks it from about three, four yards out, not QB sneak, QB rush, he walks in because of all the stuff they do to free him up, and it shouldn't be a surprise that he's going to run it. So very clever stuff by Shane Steichen there in, in Indianapolis. I think that's going to be a great fit for AR. And, yeah, can he stay healthy? If he does, I think he's going to be – a really compelling player having my fantasy team for those rush yards. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe I need to play next week. We'll see. Yeah, and I think already it's safe to say that he's, and how about this, compare him to some others like Justin Fields. Oh, yeah. He already looks infinitely far more advanced than a guy who's played a lot more football than him as a starter, as a passer. And that's largely what we try to talk about on the pod is, you know. I yeah, don't Justin know. Fields, the people who still line up behind him, I was like, what? what would give you the credence other than he was a top 10 pick that you should continue to cape for him. I, if he shows it to me, great. I'm not like writing him off. He can never do it, but he hasn't shown me that he can. Yeah. Like so far relative debuts and what you see on film, yeah. you know, strong. So that's good stuff there. Uh, all right. Anything else we're missing? No, it's fun. Thanks for uh, doing a little extra, you know, yeah, kind of Jack's talk there sweet. for me. I'll, I'll, end, I'll, I'll end before you end with my note. Go Dolphins. I'm a big Dolphins mm. fan. Their defense struggles, but man, that was a wildly fun game on offense. And for me, it is therapeutic to watch my Dolphins with an insanely creative passing offense in contrast to what I get on Saturdays. I love that. It is a lot of fun. And a quick plug here that this Friday night, yeah, first magnitude, 7 p.m. in Gainesville, Florida, 79, first magnitude. Just show up. No tickets necessary. We'll be in the back of first mag. they got a sweet setup back there. If you've not been back there, come hang out, talk football, talk ball with Alan and I and little Peyton. We look forward to seeing you there. All right, everybody. Hope we're back with a big Gator win. That'd be really, really fun. Looking forward to talking to you guys regardless. See you then. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com